This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. If you followed me for a little bit, you know in what high regard I hold today's guest. David Morrell, scholar, professor, gentleman, author, and creator of Rambo. This year is the 50th anniversary of the publication of First Blood. It came out on May 25th, 1972. In today's conversation, we get in to the cultural significance of Rambo and David's influence on me personally and professionally. So now, without further ado, my friend, David Morrell. David, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This means so much to me. Um, and uh, like we were just talking about, all, we have so much we could discuss on this podcast. We could talk for days about all your work <laughs> and influences and life story. Um, but because this is the 50th anniversary of the publication of First Blood, uh, I think we're going to focus on First Blood and Rambo as a the phenomenon sure. of Rambo as a, as a whole, um, because it had such an impact on, on me, um, both as, as a writer and then obviously my path into the military. And it did on a lot of other, other people as well. But um, this is the 50th anniversary. And I, I emailed you a little while ago because I knew the year 1972 and I looked online to try to find the exact date and uh, it, it, it wasn't readily apparent. So I, I, uh, I emailed you. And you said May twenty fifth, nineteen seventy two. I know it's hard. It's hard for me to imagine. I a while ago I was asked to do an introduction for the fiftieth anniversary of Ira Levin's Rosemary's Baby, and a book that I admire. And uh, uh, I thought, oh, this is cool. You know, I can do the introduction. And what an achievement! I'm thinking. You know, now Ira, God bless him, isn't with us anymore, but. Um, you know, the book lived on. And the main thing is the darn thing is still in print. And so I, you know, I did the introduction and then it took me a little while to catch up to myself and realize that very soon First Blood was going to have that same 50th half century anniversary and still be in print, never been out of print in the United States. And in, in many countries, it's still in print in the UK after 50 years. And in many of other countries where it's been translated and uh, it's, it's a humbling thing. And as you know, from your first book, I'm sure we've never talked about what you went through, but I'm willing to bet it's the same. The doubts when you do that first book and uh, you know, is this, is this going in the right direction? And I spent three years on first blood and we're not talking about you know a casual this or that i'm talking about every day i was in in uh, in graduate school at the time at penn state um so i had a full load there but i every day i worked on that book and and i i i you know it would go in one direction i said no that's not what i want and it would go in another direction and that's not what i want and um, I went through three major different drafts and there were, and I don't know if this was the case with you, with the terminalist, but, you know, there were a couple of times when I said, you know, I don't think I can do this. Uh, but, you know, I, it, it finally came together with, because if you have faith in the story, did you have, did that happen to you? 
I had faith in the story just because I had been thinking about it for so long and I had such a foundation. Thanks to, to you, all the authors I read growing up, I had this solid foundation. I knew what I liked. I know what I didn't. I knew what worked for me as a, as a fan, as a reader. Um, and so I felt very confident going in, but there's always that doubt. There's always that yeah. lingering doubt. I mean, who knows? No one might buy it. It might not resonate with people. You never know until it hits that marketplace. And then that's- Did the you middle. ever stop and say, no, I can't, this, is, this isn't right or this is too hard or anything like that? Nope. I, there were, I mean, I guess there's always going to be doubts at the beginning just on the length. Like, how can I do this juggling juggling a family I, and I'm still in the military? And how uh, how long does it take to write a thousand words a day? I, I don't know. Or how long does it take to write 2,500 <laughs> yeah. a day? Or how long it's does it take learning. if you're going to do a little research and just write 300 or 600 a day? Like, those are the things. Uh, does it take five years, two years, one year? Like, uh, do you weekends? How do you, life comes into play there? And yeah. you have a vacation yeah. or a family emergency or whatever it might be. Um, so those were the more of the doubts. Like, is this going to take 10 years or one? And so you just don't know uh, starting out. Um, the typical advice you hear is a thousand words a day, just keep going. Eventually you'll have a novel, but with life, exactly. there's just, uh, it was, that, that uh, wasn't really possible. So sometimes that was 2,500 a day. Sometimes it was 500 a day. Sometimes it was more research. Um, but, uh, I always knew that it would, th there would be a novel and it might just be from my bedside table. And if that's yeah. how it was, then that was going to be okay too. Uh, that's what I, uh, um, uh, when I when I teach writing, I say anybody who sets out to write a novel, if you think about it that way, it's an it's an undoable task. But if you say I can do this many pages a day, and this of course depends on whether you have a day job and you know whether you have a family and things of that nature. If you're a single parent, especially difficult. Um, I'm reminded uh, that uh, some some authors uh, got up at four o'clock in the morning. And yeah. and did it. It's it's a drive. This is somewhat of an exaggeration, but you must want it almost more than life itself. No, that's not uh, an exaggeration, and it's hard for those who uh, who haven't done it to process that. And same thing with the SEAL team. Same thing with buds. You have to want that. They have to. You have to think. Yes. Hey, uh, the only way that I'm not going to make it through this training is if they kill me. Um, and it's very similar in, uh, in writing. <laughs> and you get the same looks. I think we've talked about this before, but you get the same looks when you tell someone you want to be a SEAL as yeah. you do when you tell someone you're writing a novel. They, <laughs> they kind of like pat you on the head, like you'll yeah, grow out of it. Right. You know, yeah. like you know how hard that is. Very similar. <laughs> and uh, even if they don't mean to discourage you, it's just that look that you get. Uh, and any any writer or author can uh, can understand that look, especially when you're just starting out and you tell someone you're going to embark upon this path and they uh, kind of discourage you because maybe, I don't know, they just haven't done it themselves. They wanted to do it themselves or they just think, hey, that's an impossible task reserved for people with last names like King and Patterson or something yeah. like that. But they did the same thing. Uh, in my writing book, I, I describe, a, I have a quote from Francois Truffaut, the film director, who said, and you can apply this to writing a novel, um, that uh, making a movie is like a stagecoach ride. At the start, it's very exciting, but at the end, you're happy to get off with your life. <laughs> I think there's something to that as we get to the end of uh, this process of the Terminal List uh, series where we're doing the post-production now and doing the visual effects and, and all that sort of a thing. Um, but And your, your influence on me there was profound as well in that when I first got the call from the showrunner, who's like, uh, for those listening, is kind of like the director for a feature film, a showrunner manages the multiple directors and everything else going on in a series. Um, but his experience, and I think most people in Hollywood, their experience with authors is that they want to get rid of that author right away. Oh, <laughs> that's almost always the case. It's enviable that they allowed you to 
be part of it. Yeah, it was, it was very different, I think. Um, but the reason that they did, that they accepted me, is because in that first phone call, when I think there was a little bit of apprehension, uh, past experience with authors on set saying, you ruined my vision or whatever <laughs> it, it might have been, um, I brought up First Blood. And I brought up in this initial call with the showrunner and it put him immediately at ease because I got to talk about um, my experience as a reader and then as a fan of movies and, and, uh, and TV series and these things. But I brought up First Blood and I brought up the book being so different than the film, but yes. both being amazing, incredible, yes. iconic novel, iconic film. Um, and I brought that up and showed that, hey, I understand that what we do here with The Terminal List is going to be different mm. than the book. And that's mm -hmm. okay. Uh, so, yeah. but I brought that up and that immediately put him at ease, but that's all, that's all due to you. This is, uh, yeah, the, I, with first blood, the novel, which uh, we go back now to 1972, the publication date movie came out in 1982. So there's a 10 year difference. And there were 26 different scripts between novel and film. Uh, but I often compare the two projects and, and, uh, just, to remove any doubt, I admire the film adaptation considerably enough so um, that I recorded an audio commentary that is on Blu-rays and 4Ks of the of the film, uh, and it's a full-length audio commentary in which I talk about uh, the origins of the novel and what what and you know the drama behind the scenes to get a movie made. Um, and um, people tell me they they found it uh, to be a pretty informative audio commentary. Uh, and uh, so if anybody's curious to get in in depth here, um, but I, I think on different train tracks. Uh, and in fact, even though the movie uses most of, but not all of the incidents in the novel, and of course changes the ending, um, uh, even though it, it's so similar in plot, it's interesting to see how the novel has an interpretation of its events, that the movie has a different, not a conflicting interpretation, but certainly a different uh, interpretation. And so it's almost textbook. And, and I'm looking forward to seeing your uh, limited series, the, the, the Terminal List, to see how that then works in terms of, of your book. Um, but it's these things when done so that both are, and I'm, I don't mean to be presumptuous, I'm speaking for myself, respectable novel and film adaptations, um, that they're in a way textbook uh, sort of film school examples of how um, these things can evolve and how necessarily they must be different, and yet they can still be respectful to the source material. Exactly. And that was what was important to Chris Pratt, to Antoine Fuqua, the director, uh, the showrunner. They wanted to stay true to that source material as far as authenticity, uh, that darkness, that grittiness. Um, and I, and I uh -huh. think they, they did. So that was important to them from, from the outset. Um, but I guess we should also say we should say there are going to be spoilers here. Uh, and anyone who has not read First Blood and has only seen the movie should stop yes. listening to this right now, go get the book, read the book, and then come <laughs> listen to the podcast. I feel like we shouldn't need to say spoiler alert if something's been out since 1972. But I, but because in this case, uh, so many people were introduced to your work through the, the film, a lot of people assume that they know the book because they yes. saw the film, um, which is a very interesting type of a, a type of a dynamic. But um, so go get the book, anyone listening, and then come back to the, the podcast. But First Blood's often been referred to as the, the father of the modern action novel. Um, and it's a refighting of the Vietnam War on, on U.S. soil. 
And that really influenced me also in writing the terminal list in that you can read it a few different ways. It can just be yes. a fun, grab it off the shelf and tear through it. And it's an action novel, wonderful, uh, but you can go a little deeper into it as well. And someone who is a veteran of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, bringing those wars home to the front doors of people who have been sending young men and women to their death for, at the time when I wrote it, 16 years. But Obviously, now yes. more than that. So, um, your, your influence on me was profound in so many different ways. Um, but as you said, you started writing First Blood when you were a graduate student, and you went to Penn State to to study study Hemingway. And I have yes. Hemingway's typewriter. You can't see it, but the but the people watching can see it. This is Hemingway's typewriter right here, on which he wrote a movable feast. Yeah, really. And it's uh, so oh, it, that's amazing. Yeah, it's crazy. So A.E. Hotchner uh, had it. He gave it to Hemingway to write a movable feast on. And then huh? when uh, when Hotchner passed away in 2020, all that uh, all his possessions essentially went up for auction, and a fan got it for me and sent it to me, which is incredible. I'm stunned. That's yeah. amazing. It, yeah, it's an amazing story. I uh, yeah, I I was studying Hemingway at Penn State. Uh, I'm a professor there. Uh, named Philip Young um, had uh, been had written the first book about Hemingway and had written so wonderfully. This is this is almost impossible to imagine, but some professors do indeed write beautifully about literature and compellingly. This is an important word to me for something to be compelling. And uh, I was in Canada uh, at a small liberal arts college in a twin city called Kitchener Waterloo in Ontario. And uh, I'd read his book, and I, 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 I bet we've we've not talked about this, but I bet in your life, certain things have happened. You say, from that moment, you know you've changed. And when I read this book, Philip Young, Ernest Hemingway, I went home to my wife, who was then <clears throat> we were newly married, and she was a history teacher in high school, and I said, I got this great idea. After I graduate from from college, why don't you quit your job? <laughs> and we're going to travel to the United States so I could study with this guy. And the assumption that he'd even accept me as a student and my wife being the kind of person she's, that's cool. Let's go. And, uh, and so Hemingway, but the thing about Hemingway, you do this too. We don't write like Hemingway, but we both approach what we're doing with the attitude that Hemingway, Hemingway can be in, considered an action writer. Farewell to Arms, for whom the bell tolls, to have and have not, uh, especially. Uh, and when I read him, it's as if no one had written action before. So the question to me was, how did he do this? And, and so, and Hemingway being Hemingway, he was constantly looking at the language to see how he could make it fresher. And I remember uh, when I set out to write First Blood, can I, you know, a shot rang out and all this stuff. Gun right? smoke it, filled it the just, air. It, it's gun smoke, even though <laughs> in modern in modern ammunition, there is no gun smoke. So great. Um, and I, 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 it drives me crazy uh, when I see this. And it, often by, you know, authors that you and I know, and I just sort of, you know, muzzle myself and there's got to be a better way to do it. So when, when I started First Blood, I thought, uh, how, how is this possible? And there's a, there's a moment in early in the book, the first action scene, where Rambo is in the basement of the, of the police station, and he's there about to shave him. 
And he's having the flashback to when he was in the pit in Vietnam and, 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 and finally breaks and is going to fight back as if he's in the war. Uh, and he gets his hands on the razor and he slices in, in this is one of those, the movie is sort of, somebody once said the movie was war is heck and the novel is war is hell uh, because he slices it and basically opens up the deputy's stomach. And uh, the deputy looks down and, it, and I can't remember the exact language, but it refers to as if a bicycle tire had split in the days of inner tubes and that an inner tube was bulging and that he pressed his to try to put the inner tube back in. Mm. And I thought, all right, I, I see where I'm going now. Like the vividness, the unusual, the visceral, literally visceral quality quality of that description. And that became what I tried to do for the for the rest of the book. And my agent at the time was Henry Morrison. And he said, I, you know, I don't know if, if I can place <laughs> this because until that time, action books had been paperbacks. Uh, and he and he said, I, I'll try it in a paperback and by heaven. Um, a company called M. Evans, which had been well known for nonfiction books such as Body Language and Open Marriage, mm. and the 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 revised um, oh come on the, the 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 running book was his name Cooper. Uh, uh. The, uh, uh, it, it'll come to me anyway. He was the guy that started the jogging craze, which uh -huh. persists today, <laughs> and um, the new aerobics. It was oh, called. interesting. Okay, and uh, they had published this, but they hadn't done much fiction, and they said we're going to do this uh, as a hardback, um, and like this had never, you, you know, you it's never been done before because I think because the language was not pulpy because it had, that's the, yeah, not a beautiful cover. Amazing. It's Amazing. a, it's a lovely cover. That's the yeah. first edition of in the United States. Yeah. I still, I, I still have to smile. I remember, you know, getting copies of it so cool. and saying, wow. And yeah. uh, the, the, uh, the reviews saw that this was something different so that it was reviewed almost everywhere. Um, uh, I mean, Life Magazine, a lot of magazines not existent anymore, Saturday Night, uh, Night Review, um, uh, Time, Newsweek, New York Times, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I don't mean to say that, you know, in a way putting down, I mean, it. I, I'm perhaps too casual about that because it was a big deal, but it would take a long time to give the list. The only negative review was from Time Magazine, hmm. which in which understood the change and called what I had done carnography. Wow. Which they defined as the meat novel equivalent of pornography. Wow. Uh, and um, in its way, that was the most important review of First Blood because that writer, in a negative way, got it that this was something different. Um, and uh, and uh, in, in your case, I know what I admire about many things about your work is your approach to language in the same way that I, I don't find that, oh, you know, I've done this before. I'll just go through the motions. Every one of your action scenes has an approach that uh, is not comparable 
to what I see in, you know, in what we would describe as a standard action book. Oh, thank you so much. I, I think about you when I'm writing and I'm like, what would David think about oh. this? I mean, there can't be a gunshot yeah. ringing out. There can't be gun smoke filling the air. <laughs> I can't be, I can't be regurgitating things that are in yeah. my subconscious um, because I've done so much reading. Uh, it has to be pulled from either my personal experience or looked at through the lens of maybe someone not familiar with the violence or something different. Uh, just, yes. a, just a little bit, even if it's just by a degree. Uh, but I do think about you. I'm like, oh, I can't have David reading the a gunshot <laughs> ring out here. <laughs> you know, I, I have, I, you know, we were all influenced that I writers and I have a, 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 the person I learned to write uh, fiction from was a professional science fiction writer who was teaching writing at Penn State. His name was Philip Class and his pen name was William Ten. The dedication. Now I've written a few. Uh, yes, it's to to Philip Class and William Ten, each in his own way. Love that. And and uh, and uh, I have written a few science fiction things in, in short stories but it's you know it's not my not my uh my my strength um but it, writing is writing and um and often when i'm working i'll i'll say what would phil say you know what you know is would he be say you know you can do better or are you kidding me you know we <laughs> and so we have built-in sensors and i'm, I'm very flattered that i I serve that function for you. Oh, you cer certainly do. And in, in one of the, I think it's the Gauntlet Press edition of, of First Blood, um, you actually talk about the um, uh, professor at Penn State and that a couple lines that uh, made you think, wow, this person is different. He's writing a book, yes. but he's about, it, it's different than other things that have been written about Hemingway. It's a beautiful passage. And I can see yes. why it influenced you so much. Uh, and I love the dedication. So even from the dedication, uh, each in his own way, that it's, it's the First Blood starts off differently than other book. And, it, and even with that dedication, which is what I love, because most people would think it's two people and then yeah. just go on to read the rest <laughs> yeah. of the novel. But a few knew, a few knew, you know, what I was doing. Um, and, and then of course, you know, I, I struggled forever for the opening, uh, originally, um, structure is everything in a novel and, and, but, but often an author is self-conscious and feels insecure. So originally the novel began with the chase in the mountains. I figured, mm. well, uh, you know, we'll start with something exciting, but I quickly realized that if we don't know who these people are, we don't care what happens in the chase. We have to identify with them. And so I backtracked on the plot. I kept going back and back and back to the place which I could not go any farther back. Mm. And that was when Rambo came to town and Teasel saw him. Um, and then this sentence, he, his name was Rambo and he was is just some nothing kid for all anybody knew came to me. And I, that was during, I think, toward the end of the second draft. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, now, now I know where I'm going. And the, the thing straightened itself out. Nice. And I was going to read that opening line, but you, uh, you have it memorized. Oh. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, gee, can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, it started this whole journey, this phenomenon that, uh, that continues today. Um, and, Gosh, so the first blood experience, so the, most people see the Sylvester Stallone movie, they discover your work these days. I think that's probably in today's day and age how people uh, find it. But the book is so wonderful and so different. So people discover a new Rambo when they, when they read the book. Um, but uh, you have Rambo, you have Teasel, and Samuel Troutman. Uh, and yes. what's interesting to people who are going to go from the movie to the book and not vice versa, uh, is that Rambo and Teasel get almost equal time 
And yes. I remember when I read this for the first time, and it must have been because uh, I found I, I I found because of my age, Rambo: First Blood Part Two movie novelization. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. read that. I remember exactly what bookstore I was in uh, and when oh, I cool. saw that book. And then when I, I remember exactly where I was when I read it cover to cover in one sitting. Uh, and I want to talk to you about that later because it spent wow. six weeks on the New York Times list, which is uh, yes, it was. <laughs> for a novelization is quite unique. And there's a whole story with with that um, as well. But uh, but then I went Brotherhood of the Rose and then First Blood. So that was my that was my mm. path. And then to, then to everything else. Um, but what's interesting when you go that way is that you have protagonists and antagonists as the same people. Uh, yes. Rambo is an antagonist and a protagonist, and so is so is Teasel. And then you have Samuel Troutman, who, of course, is Uncle Sam. Um, but uh, you have two different generations coming head to head. So how did that clash of generations become the focal point of this first novel? Well, um, it, some of it was, was dictated by the subject matter. Uh, we have... The, the idea for the novel, uh, as you know, came from uh, a uh, CBS Evening News broadcast I had seen in 1968. And just for some historical context, 1968 was one of the most violent years the United States knew um, because of protests against the war. Uh, and civil rights protests, and they, they, this was a violent time. Um, <clears throat> there weren't, I love to do this, there weren't 10 riots, there weren't 50 riots, there weren't 100 riots, there were several hundred riots. And many cities in the United States have still not recovered from the riots of 1968. Watts in Los Angeles, parts of Detroit, parts of Gary, Indiana, uh, and we could go to, those are three big ones that come to mind, <clears throat> so that it was not uncommon to see uh, on the news, as I did that night, um, a, a films about, a, a news uh, section about a firefight in Vietnam, fairly graphic, although they didn't, weren't showing corpses, but there was a, mm-hmm. certainly that grit feel to it. And, and to see military personnel patrolling American cities uh, and uh, burnt out, gutted areas, uh, cars that had burned, burned, buildings that had been burned. And I said, it's as if, the war had come home. And that was the moment. And I should add as well, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated and Robert Kennedy Jr. was assassinated. Uh, it was a bad year. And uh, so the, the goal was to have a version of the Vietnam War in the United States. And what would be, you know, a certain point, you ask the logical questions, who can best represent this? And I thought I'll have somebody like Audie Murphy, America's most decorated soldier of World War II, who was deeply troubled after the war. Uh, had He'd written a book about his experiences in the war to Helen Back and had planned to do another book about what it felt like peacetime after that, mm-hmm. uh, but, but did not. But he had what we now call PTSD in extreme. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought, 
and I was of a generation where I knew about Audie Murphy vividly. I, he'd become a movie star. He was a Western star. And if you see his movies in the action scenes when he's using the weapons, something happens in his eyes. And it's as if he's back in, in, in Europe. So I, he became my, as people say, was there a, a, a character, somebody I had in mind for Rambo? Yes, Audie Murphy. Um, but what would happen if Audie Murphy was in Vietnam and, and Medal of Honor comes back, he grows a beard and, you know, you in 1968, you would not have been going <laughs> down the street without police officers challenging you. Um, and I, as a, I'm, I'm, I'm Canadian, so I don't, I'm, I was, I'm a little more conservative by nature, but I grew this mustache in 1968 to see as an experiment and immediately people in authority hassled me. Interesting. Um, and so I, you know, I was sort of method acting as it were to see, you know, the emotions that that endangered or that that created. So what would happen if Audie Murphy came back from Vietnam, received the medal of honor, grew a beard, had his hair down to here at a time when no, that was not something uh, and what would happen if he were, uh, from his point of view, this is very important, is the movie chooses to see everything from Rambo's point of view. Uh, but the novel says, all right, there are two sides to this. Um, and so a police officer in 1968, a book was published in 72, but it's essentially that the same thing. What would he think and how would he react? And in fact, for the time, Teasel is acting fairly moderately to him, but, you know, so then we, we, so we, we, we'd go back and forth. We have Rambo looking at Teasel, Teasel looking at Rambo and their inability to cross-reference and see where the other guy was coming from. Uh, and uh, it took me a while to understand that the theme of the book would be best expressed by this alternating viewpoint. It wasn't until near the end of the second uh, draft of the novel that I realized this was this was the the the, the way that plotted the, the the conflict in in the very form of the book, mm -hmm. uh, so that we'd see Rambo and say, yeah, that you know, so and so Teasel, and then we go into Teasel's mind. We say, well, wait a minute, I guess I was wrong. That Rambo, he's what's the matter with him? And then we go back and forth and it would be so confusing for the reader, like who to cheer for. And then we add to the fact, as I said, sort of by, by necessity, Teasel had to be older than him. Mm -hmm. So then that in, at the time, the generation gap was a big deal. You know, Rambo in at the time, a young person's war, 21 years old, maybe. I never say how old he is, but he would have been young. Uh, I, as you know, I went to uh, Iraq in 2010 as part of the first USO authors tour to a war zone. And I was, uh, in my innocence, I hadn't realized how much older, mm -hmm. I say that respectfully, 30s, 40s, 50s, um, that many of the people, I, many of the service people I met over there were. They were not young people's wars, <laughs> uh, at least, you know, in, the, in, in uh, well, I, you know, a different, different subject. Uh, um, but so by definition, Tisa would have been because he had been in Korea and that gave me a chance to talk about Korea and what that was like as a, as a traditional, if there's such a thing, tactic war mm -hmm. compared to 
uh, uh, Vietnam, which while the military tried often as hard as it could to make it a traditional war, mm. it was the guerrilla tactics uh, that that were making the difference. And as as you know from your your history of of, of, of warfare in the military, there was a major conflict in the United States military about how this war was going to be conducted. And a lot of them were reluctant to use special operations personnel because they thought of them as being somehow so unconventional that they couldn't be controlled. And that became part of the theme. So it was Korea versus Vietnam in terms of tactics. It was an older man versus a young man. And also I thought of Teasel as being a sort of Eisenhower Republican mm -hmm. as representing a conservative political, not in the way conservatism is now, uh, but uh, a, a more moderate version of what conservatives were at that time. Uh, whereas Rambo, I thought of as having been so disaffected from the war that he was almost the equivalent eventually of what were of the SDS people, the Students for a Democratic Society, which were which were um, left violent protesters, uh, which, um, um, uh, you know, it, it goes against uh, some conventional thinking about these things. So, um, so I had it all, you know, I had like at least three conflicts going uh, between the age, between yeah. the, the political attitudes and between the war. And, and that anytime you can get that kind of, um, of 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 coming together of opposites, uh, you you have the opportunity for a good story, and in this case, conflict. Uh, and Teasel yes. is old enough to be Rambo's father. Yes, um, that conventional versus guerrilla warfare. In the book, you go much more into Korean War. The movie, you have a hint, and I love that. I love the little yeah. the hints in in films yes. for those because it's like a reward for those who have uh, ha have read the novels. And uh, so there's a, a medal uh, uh, yeah. behind or in front it's on the a desk. Case Mm -hmm. Case of medals behind mm -hmm. Brian Dennehy. Uh, it's it's not pointed up, but it's there. It's there. Uh, I mean, he's got. I I have to go take a look. I, I, as I recall, at least three. Okay. Um, and you know, they don't make a big deal of it, right. but it is there, so we know he had a military background, uh, which is you know a good way for a movie if they're not going to explore it um, in a in an obvious way. It's a good way at least to put that sub detail in there yep. so we can intuit things about the character oh i love that and uh when you see the terminal list there's a there's a scene that uh it's it's uh james reese's workspace in his garage essentially his office and there's you know books back there a couple stickers some things on the wall so there's there's some uh some little rewards there for uh yeah. for people who have <clears throat> spent time in the pages of the of the novels um but now that that almost 50 years have passed since that publication day. And when this podcast drops, it'll be that, that week of, uh, of publication. Oh, fine. Um, That's but exciting. When you look back on that, uh, on the 50 years and have taken a breath and uh, just watched everything that has transpired over this last 50 years since you wrote those opening lines and wor worked through those first, first drafts, um, did your father being shot down in World War II impact the novel? Was it, was it, conscious unconscious or was was there was there an influence there and i know that we've talked about my grandfather uh being killed in world war ii off okinawa mm. a corsair pilot kamikaze hit the, the 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 deck of his aircraft carrier and he's in the ready room and wow. it was almost a direct hit there and of course that uh influenced me uh 
which continues to influence me today. Uh, and then I got that popular culture influence with uh, Baba Black Sheep, Black Sheep Squadron, Robert Conrad playing Pappy yes. Boynton, flying the same plane my grandfather did, both Marines. Oh, wow. Uh, so I had that cultural influence as well. And then that family history. But uh, did you think about that at all as you were writing uh, this novel? Or was there anything that, looking back, that might have been uh, written into the pages subconsciously? I think, yeah, I think some of it was subconscious. The, <clears throat> my father was um, a British naval pilot. Um, and his job, he was shot down uh, shortly after the D-Day landing over France. Uh, uh, he was shot down. Uh, and uh, his job was to fly over where British naval shells were hitting and to and to report where they were hitting so that the ships could adjust the trajectory of the barrels uh and he w- he was shot down uh, and um i grew up <clears throat> with my my mother this was i say grew up i was up till maybe when i was 3 or 4 uh and i didn't know that uh, I'd visit somehow I'd be with friends and they had this guy hanging around, you know, there was the mother. I thought the normal household was a mother and a child. And I didn't know sometimes men who have <laughs> in this household too. Uh, so I was very puzzled to see this and I did not get uh, some clarity on this. My mother was a brilliant seamstress but was unable to work and take care of me and of necessity at a time when if, if, if single parents say there's not enough social help for them now, certainly there wasn't then. And my mother uh, uh, reluctantly uh, put me in an orphanage. So for a year, uh, it, in my memory, I was uh, uh, alone, as it were, in an orphanage. And that, you know, I'm conditioned. I'm, I'm very comfortable being by myself. Um, and then she subsequently boarded me on a Mennonite farm uh, where the man, his name was Wilfred Schantz. Uh, he was a Mennonite and uh, he was friendly but stern. It was from him I learned that I had to chew 50 times before I swallowed. Mm. And to this day, I am a slow eater. I have great respect for the Mennonites. I'm not, this is not, you know, this was just a a thing we had between us. It's interesting that the first name of Teasel is Wilfred. And whether I chose that deliberately or not, I cannot remember any longer Mm. i just knew that was his name uh subsequently my mother remarried uh to someone who was supposed to be a substitute father but didn't like children didn't know how to relate to them so we had a very contentious uh i i if i had a hundred a hundred sentences that we exchanged in my entire experience with him that would have been a lot so my um, this this figure of the ambiguous the, the ambiguous father figure uh, is certainly present in First Blood, and and you mentioned uh, kindly Brotherhood of the Rose. The same thing happens there. We have orphans. I mean, what I just told you, you know, we have the orphans with the 
as it were, foster father, the substitute father, who turns out not to really be what he said he was and wasn't really the, the, the father that he claimed to be. Um, and, the, you know, it, when Saul in Brotherhood of the Rose gets his revenge, I can't deny that a little bit of my anger <laughs> to my stepfather, you know, came out. So, so half deliberate, half, um, half subconscious. But as, as I tell when I teach writing, I say, look, don't try to be somebody else. Don't try to be another author. That, the, the fans for that other, other author are fine just the way everything is. You have to figure out who you are or at least allow portions of your personality to announce themselves so that you write books that only you could mm-hmm. have written. Uh, and and I, I can't guarantee you earn a living as a writer doing this, but I can guarantee the other way you're not going to do very well. <laughs> So, uh, but anyhow, that's, that's how that, how that, that antagonism between the, you know, the young man and the, and the older authority figure came about. And that, uh, that advice you just gave to, to writers there, there's a, I encourage everybody to go to your website, davidmorell.net. There's some amazing writing advice on there. So go there, check all of that out. And then the book also, which is back here. Uh, in this stack right here, this one's called lessons from a lifetime of writing on the outside, but the other one, uh, has the other the successful novelist, which is the yes. trade over it's here just, somewhere. It's, it's a, yeah, uh, the, uh, lessons from a lifetime was published by writer's digest. And when that book, for whatever reason, the rights came back to me, I can't recall what that was about. I think they were minimizing their publications. Mm. Um, um, source books then, uh, republished it with a slight revision. Uh, it's essentially the same book with the exception that I added a book about marketing, but it's interesting that that, but that version is successful. I'm, I can't speak the successful, successful novelist, novelist. Yes. <laughs> um, the, uh, 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 was published in 2009 and the advice I gave about uh, marketing and also about how you submit things to mm. publishers, it all changed. Mm. Um, that you know that uh, I still in in the successful novelist talk about sending actual printed pages, physical pages to a publisher. Well, that's not going to work anymore. <laughs> they, it's all it's all digital. Uh, so I you know the the I doubt there'll ever be a revised that source book will ever say we're going to release another version. But um, it is interesting that in since two thousand nine, how much things changed and and that uh, advice I gave in that in those small areas um, are no longer valid. Well, it's interesting. And then on the, the website also, there's, what is it, three-minute video that you do on there with your advice just broken down uh, just so clearly. It's it's fascinating. Every author needs to go, every writer, aspiring mm-hmm. author needs to go and watch that for there sure. There is a, uh, in 2000, I keep forgetting when the pandemic started, two months before the shutdown started to occur and people were not meeting in public mm-hmm. the same way. I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and an hour south of me is Albuquerque, New Mexico, where the Southwest Writers Organization is based. And every Saturday, or maybe it's every month on a Saturday, they have a, a meeting. And so occasionally I give talks there. So just before the pandemic, I gave a talk, which they recorded full length. Mm-hmm. So it's a 50-minute talk. Unfortunately, it's a static camera, so I couldn't 
move the way I usually do when I'm, when, you know, with pacing back and forth and all that. Uh, and that's that one out, that 50 minute talk is also on the, on my website, on the writing page. Yeah, I know it's so much great advice on there. Uh, and interestingly, you mentioned not, uh, not sending things uh, printed out. I didn't know that really. So I, I sent mine, uh, printed um, to Emily Bessler at Emily Bessler books, Atria Simon and Schuster. <laughs> I printed it and I found out exactly what, um, what font she preferred. I found out exactly how she liked the margins and the spacing. And that's how yes. I printed it. And that's how I, uh, that's how I sent it in November of 2016. And then, uh, uh, she called me in December and we met in person in New York and went from there. So do you think now, we don't want to start an inundation of the publishers with all these <laughs> manuscripts showing up. And that was 2016, not 2022. No. Do you think that un unusual, you know, the page is actually showing up and looking professional? Because you might not know. So I've seen this. I've seen, I've been in offices in the in the day when they got printed. Mm. You can't believe how junky they look. They're single spaced. Uh, the 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 it's they're all in italics. Uh, they're oh, oh wow. heavens, all the thing. And then people just say, well, they don't know the business and 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 it's tossed. Would you say that sort of that unusual presentation for you helped? get the attention? I think so. I think so. Being a little bit different, taking that extra time. Yeah. So I got it as good as I could possibly get it, make it look ex as close to being an actual book as I could. Uh, yes. and then I knew she didn't want it, didn't like it bound, which is how I do it here. When I do my, uh, when I do my edits, I, I bind it with that little spiral binding and I put oh, a little back on it and I put a cover on it. So I'm reading it. I try to experience it like a reader reading it for the first time when I go back yes. through and start my edits with, <laughs> with this red pen. Um, and but and I, as you as you know, I think we've talked about our you know from what I've written. I advocate a digital and analog editing, so that while I write on a computer, uh, most of the time there are a few cases where I I write in where I wrote in longhand. I, um, I then print out and go to a different place from where I write, uh, because your mind changes. Yep. Uh, and uh, I, you know, with, uh, you know, with whatever color pen, you know, the, 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 maybe the more dramatic, better <laughs> go through it uh, and then make the changes. They're, they're not huge because otherwise you'd be paralyzed mm -hmm. and then put them back into the digital version and then continue. And that going back and forth um, is, I think, really helpful in terms of getting a fresh look at what you're doing. Yep. No, it's exactly, exactly what I do. I go to a different place and my wife says, don't you have an office? Why are you not reading this in your office? Like, well, I have to go to a <laughs> yeah. different place to read it That's in a different right. spot. It's so important. Yes. And then I have a different computer also for just writing. So I have two separate laptops, one for business and everything else. And then one that is only for writing. And the only reason it's connected to the internet is so that word can do its, its update. But other than yeah. that, it's just for writing. Uh, so I know when I open that, there's no other distractions and now it's time to get to work. That's really, that's really good. Uh, I, I, um, I don't use a laptop, so I use a, you know, my computer's like that, that big. Um, but that's, that's a further extension of what you're talking about. Plus, you know, it, it may be helpful in terms of viruses and things getting into the, into the manuscript and I do not trust the cloud. So I don't send anything to the cloud. Mm. I, I back up with a, a little, a separate hard drive at the end of the day. And then the specific manuscript that I'm working on, I back up secondly with a flash drive. 
Ooh, that's good. And, and and then I keep both of these in separate places. And I, you know, I heard this terrible story once. An author said, "Oh, you know, I backed up, I had this, and I had that." But she she kept them all connected to the computer. Oh. And when the lightning strike happened, I mean, you know, God, how God forbid! I mean, how tragic. Uh, but you know, it's all destroyed. Um, but you know, and and I keep those two things in separate places in the house, uh, so that in the event of a fire, Lord knows what, um, I I know they're separate from you know my I'm from the office. There's and I can get to them if I have to. I mean, if I necessarily just grab like a football, take the hard drive, <laughs> you know. Yeah, no, that's that is very smart right there. I wonder how many. People have had that experience of getting near to the end of their first novel. It doesn't matter what number novel it is, but first novel just be heartbreaking. Uh, any of them would be heartbreaking. But leaving yes. it, leaving a physical copy, maybe in the days when when one typed everything and left it on a subway or left it on a bus in a backpack or had it stolen, it was out of their car or something like. There's got to be so many stories that are like that. That and, are just well, heartbreaking. You, you, I'm, I'm sure you know the story about Hemingway, uh, where his first wife um, Hadley. He was a newspaper person as well as a, as a novelist, uh, although he hadn't been published yet. And he was in Switzerland covering a peace conference, and she went to visit him, and he'd met someone of influence. So she packed up the typescripts, got on the train, and that was the end of that. The, 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 the suitcase was stolen, and that's one of the great – there have been a lot of no novels written about, sure. about what was in, in the suitcase. Um, and so this is why I recommend – that at some point you print out, yeah, the trees, you know, and, and, you know, it's the environment and all of that, but print the damn thing out and, and have it someplace so that in the event of, of all other catastrophes, you have the, you have the print version. Yep. No sage advice right there. And, uh, so I'm going to do another spoiler alert here because now this is the time we talked a little bit about it, but for sure now, if you have not read the book, definitely go and get it and stop listening to this and then come back to it. But uh, so <laughs> both Rambo and Teasel die at the end of the book. Yes, that's correct. Rambo yes. kills Teasel. Samuel Troutman kills Rambo. The system, Uncle Sam that created Rambo yes. destroys him in the end. And I mean, pure genius. Um, how oh. did you have that? ending in mind when you started did you have an outline did you know where you were going to to end up or did that come about naturally as you progressed through the manuscript no i i knew it um there were uh, and remember uh, uh, you you have acquired a classical education by diligence reading the masters and analyzing them and learning and i forgive me if i include myself in oh, you know but our right. admiration for jeffrey household yes our admiration for uh you know so many that you beautifully echo in your uh, and, and forget me household for example was my i i exchanged letters with him Love he, that story. he was he was he was for me he's the guy um and, didn't he write uh, something back to you uh that stands out Oh <laughs> yes, I sent him. He's British, and 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 you know he came from Rogue Mail, R O G U E M A L E. It's his his great book. There he wrote several others, but that's the greatest. And that was published in 1939. It's about a British big game hunter who stalks Hitler on the eve of the Second World War. Uh, and it's a it's a clever book because he gets caught on the first page, and it's not about the actual stalking; it's about what happened afterwards. Brilliant. Uh, but I, I, he and I exchanged letters because uh, I had sent him a letter about you know 
how in awe I was. Um, and he kindly responded. And at one point, I sent him a typescript of First Blood to get a publicity quote. And he declined uh, because he said, oh, dear me, no, it's far too bloody. <laughs> and, but it seemed to me the title would have been a clue, you know. But that's that, again, we go back to the Time magazine, an indication of how the world had changed from household's time. And, you know, he, he was reacting as it were like the time magazine reviewer and saying, no, 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 this is too strong. And, you know, and, and oddly, you know, first blood, I think it still has that visceral impact, but other book, yours, for example, will continue and, you know, and test the boundaries. So, but here, here's a joke. Um, there is uh, one of his uh, films, one of his books, Rogue Mail, was adapted into several films. And uh, they get, um, uh, they get uh, commentaries. Uh, and uh, so uh, a British uh, critic named um, Chris Newman uh, is, my, is my recollection of who it was. I, I've met, met him. And he was saying, well, um, a lot of people don't know who... Jeffrey Household is anymore, but if you've read David Morell's work, <laughs> you can get an idea. And I thought Household would be turning in his grave <laughs> if he if he knew this. But it's funny how how all that happens. I think that's called poetic justice uh, because his certainly isn't uh, isn't it's a it's a very violent book, especially with that the entrails at the end and the whole, I mean, yes. and I, I credit him of course, as I do you in, uh, in Savage Sun in the back, there are four novels that specifically, um, well, one's a novella that, uh, that influenced Savage Sun, my, my third novel there, but, yes. uh, Rogue Mail was, was one of them, but I love that story when he writes back to you and says it was too violent. I think that's just so, so I was, classic. I was crushed, but you know, <laughs> we, we move forward. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, John D. McDonald was then kind enough. I didn't know John, but mm -hmm. the publisher contacted him and said, would, uh, and I, uh, author I greatly admire, mm -hmm. particularly for Travis McGee, right. but also for the others, the standalones. And he graciously gave me my first quote. Oh, that's nice. Quote, that's, a, that's a good guy to get one from. That's for, one, that's for what sure. What did he say? He said, one hell of a hard, fast novel. So, okay, we'll go with Go that. with it. Yeah. Uh, I, I never had the chance to meet him. Mm. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd go with that one. I have his collection around in the other room, but they're they're not first edition. I have one first edition actually um, that's in a hardcover of his, but everything else is the the uh, the more modern. Well, reprints. most of them were in uh, paperback to okay. start with, and it was only near the end of the Travis McGee series that they began releasing them in hardback. Got it. So it'd be it'd be pretty hard to find hardbacks for most of them. Yeah, I think I just have about one. But uh, uh, interesting also that First Blood. If people have seen the films, especially the first three, and they focus on the second and third, uh, that the book First Blood is really an anti-war book and about how things escalate out of a yes. refusal to see something from someone else's point of view. And when yes. you read it with that in mind, I mean, it's a, a very rich reading experience. Um, obviously, you can read it through and just have a great time, but you can also go a little, little deeper. And obviously that's something that influenced me quite, quite a bit, but it's something also that today I think would be quite helpful. Uh, yes. when we're thinking about <laughs> misunderstandings or an yes. inability to see something from someone else's perspective and then uh, engage in a, in a thoughtful, productive way. Um, but this obviously yes. first blood highlights this at 
the extreme. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, can you talk about that, that anti-war aspect of it, and then that deeper aspect of being, not being able to see something from someone else's uh, point of view? Well, um, as, as you alluded to earlier, the, the, the book, uh, and, and we're jumping around because you also asked me if I had that ending in mind. And yes, I had the ending in mind from the start. Wow. And, I, and this, in fact, dovetails in that I saw the film I saw the the book as a um, allegory uh, in which um, these two, they would represent opposing sides and that uh, they destroy each other or more specifically, the system would destroy them. Uh, And that that you, you mentioned earlier, Samuel Troutman, his first name is deliberately chosen because he represents Uncle Sam. He is the system. And now he changes somewhat in the films, uh, but uh, I, I was privileged to have several conversations with uh, Richard Crenna and about his, 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 his confusion as to how he felt about the character. Mm. Uh, and so you see often an ambivalence in the way Richard plays the role. Uh, and, uh, and it, uh, you know, he was just so gifted at what he did. Um, and, um, so, uh, I, I, I felt that the, that first book would, um, you know, it, it, you know, the idea would be to pull back and, you know, look at, you know, as if we were, let's say, looking at the Trojan war mm. maybe and how, you know, like what, uh, and, uh, and then in the second and third films we have a different character mm-hmm. uh even the, the the movie rambo is somewhat different from the novel rambo mm-hmm. the movie rambo in two and three is different from the movie rambo mm-hmm. he is now almost a a recruiting poster and in fact when i was one of my most profound conversations which i did not have an answer for when i was in going to iraq with the uso tour when it was a war zone before that we went to two military hospitals in the dc area and we we didn't go to you know for whatever reason we went to people who had lost an arm, lost two arms, lost a leg, lost two legs, lost everything. And they, they were going to be there for a very long time because of the medical procedures to try to get it. Cause as you know, getting hit with a bullet is not like in the movies and uh, the physical damage is, is enormous and long lasting. And there were, there were there were smallish rooms. It was a bed to the right usually, and then there was a chair over here, kind of a lounger, and that lounger functioned often as a bed, you know, that it could be. Mm-hmm. And a man's wife would be there, and she had been there for four months, five months, living in that chair. His mother maybe was there. And so the only reason I could have done this is because my daughter, my son, Matthew, died from a rare bone of 
bone cancer and I'd been in children's cancers wards after lots of amputations. And my granddaughter, Natalie, died from the same rare bone cancer and she lost her left pelvic bone and uh, both, you know, both of them, it was, it was just terrible. But somehow I was able to say, Matt, Natalie, stay with me here because this is one of the most difficult, apart from the deaths of these children, as difficult a thing as I've ever done. And to a person, and there was maybe 12 people, I can't recall now, but there might've been at least 12. I went from room to room and I was by myself. They said they had joined the military because of the Rambo movies. And I said, well, then in some way, am I responsible with the book to the movie to the movies? Am I responsible for you being here? And they said, I do it again. Now, this is a very complicated topic. And as you know, often that's about the loyalty to the unit. That's about the family of your fellow fellows in the unit and, you know, to get back to that unit and that urge the love for that unit. I mean, very complicated. So when I think of two and three, I think of the effect that it had on not an entire generation of young men, but certainly a lot of them and how Sly occasionally he phones me. We're not, close friends i've never been to never had dinner with him for example but sly phoned me as he was making rambo 4 what i call rambo 4 it's just called rambo um and he said in retrospect he was uncomfortable about two and three that it glamorized the violence the warfare and that he was going to try as make a sam peckinpah version of a rambo film to answer those films and it you know the director's cut of that movie he said i'm going back to your novel he says in that movie i'm going to try to have the tone of your novel so i thought that was pretty interesting and there are there are strong lines in it where rambo says wars old men start them young men fight them nobody wins um, and uh, the, the, the feature that, that was released is, is a shorter version of the director's cut, which is available. And it's well worth uh, taking a look at that in terms of the history of, of everything. So, uh, you know, to get back to the novelizations, which you were mentioning, um, I was the only person by contract who could write a book about Rambo. So the producers, whom I liked a lot, and Andy Vanya, uh, one of the Rambo producers, he, I was closer to him than Mario Kassar. Not that there's any problem with Mario, it's just that I never had as many conversations. Mario and I, uh, Andy and I are pretty close. And um, anyhow, uh, I had uh, unusual attitude as a consequence. I received, uh, I, at first I didn't want to do them, but as I... I looked at the scripts and I thought, well, wait a minute, Ram let me understand this. Rambo is, as, as it were, trying for redemption by going back to the prisoner of war camp from which he escaped. And in the movie, it's a throwaway line. And I thought, no, 
let's, if I'm going to do this and I've now attempted to do it, I'm going to explore what it would feel like for him. And that addressing the nightmares and coming to terms with, you know, now into the past, which is a frequent theme of mine. And um, so that I was very, very happy to do that. And also, if you're a James Cameron fan, before James Cameron was James Cameron, before Aliens, uh, I mean, people knew about the Terminator, but it was sort of a, you know, closely held secret among fans. He did uh, the first script for Rambo 2, and um, it was quite different. It was very violent and very dark. Uh, and I, I, got, I was given that script in addition to the shooting script for what was released so, the, so that the, the novelization became the shooting script with a third of James Cameron's script with a third of me. Very unusual. And then in, in Rambo 3, I thought, you know, we're missing the point here that Afghanistan was America, was Russia's Vietnam. So what I want to do is investigate that with Rambo being aware of what's happening, but also I'm going to invent a counterpart for him in the Russian military who's very aware of what's going on and understands because Vietnam has already happened, understands what the Russia's experience in Afghanistan is historically. So that was a lot of fun to do. Uh, so these novelizations are in effect almost real novels, but I, I do have, they are based upon the shooting scripts as well. Uh, but you raised it, so I thought I, you know, put that in. It's a little lengthy to explain it. But. No, it's fascinating. I have some more questions about them later, actually, but this is my, this is my original right there that I picked up yeah. in that bookstore. So, so long ago, still, still have it today. And then <laughs> not too long after I got this one right here. Cause I'm like, wait, there's another cover. Um, so yes, I still, yes, there is. <laughs> I still have, uh, have, the, but this is the one that I read cover to cover back in between sixth and seventh grade that summer, right, right here. And for people that are wondering, because we did mention that Rambo dies in the first one, yes. uh, it's, <laughs> I love, <laughs> I love that. Um, so, and once I, and I, I found the movie, second movie, and then this before I saw first blood, before I read first blood because of just my, my age. And so I opened this after seeing the movie and I yeah. read in my novel, first blood Rambo died in the films. He lives. Boom. Yeah. Uh, Perfect. It's, it's, I don't know if there's ever been anything like it. I mean, Sherlock Holmes died and, and, and he came back to, you know, there was an explanation, but you know, the movies are pretty, you know, the book's pretty final. Although Rambo did die at the end of the original cut of first book. I want to ask you about that too. Uh, uh, in that, so I've seen that director's cut. I've seen that people can find it on either the, I think there's special features in, in, a, in a few of the different DVD versions. Sure. I think you can find it on YouTube as well. But, uh, you know, maybe it's because I saw the movie, uh, not too long after I saw the first one and then read this. And then I saw first blood. Then I read the, the book after every brotherhood of the rose. Um, but all in a very short, short time period right there. Um, and then I didn't see that alternate ending until so long later until the advent of technology it, allowed for these things oh. to, and I like the way the movie ended the, the actual one. It's better. The, the, the one they, it, in the, for those who are curious, although as you say, it is available, but it doesn't, it's, you know, the, the film elements have, have not been preserved. It's not right. very good looking, but basically Rambo takes the, uh, they're in the police station and Teasel has a, a, uh, a handgun and Rambo t takes it from him and commits suicide, which is 
I, as, as Sly himself said, no, 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 this, this is not, this is not the way to do this. And, and, uh, it was shown at a test audience in Las Vegas, Nevada, and they were not happy. No. Uh, and, uh, you know, I wouldn't have been either, um, because of the way it was set up, you know, the, the movie had its own logic. And so Andy and Mario, uh, and, and you, you know, your relationship with the folks are doing terminal list, uh, Andy and Mario, uh, again, not Mario so much, except when we met in person, but Andy and I would have frequent conversations on the phone. He's alas, no longer with us either. And, uh, we, we would talk about, you know, the reasons they had done this and that. And he told me they never planned to make a sequel. Mm -hmm. uh, they thought it was a one-off and they hoped that they'd have, you know, a success with it. And then by accident, as it were, because of the demands of the audience in Las Vegas, Nevada, they said, well, I guess we better go back. And so they had to go back to British Columbia where the film was, uh, was made. Uh, because of uh, um, difference in uh, the value of currency and also because the Canadian, if you used enough Canadian uh, people on the production, there was a, a, you know, a benefit, mm -hmm. a financial benefit. So they went back and got Richard and you know, everybody back there to, to do the ending that we now know. And then you know, they said, ah, you know, because the picture did very well. Oh, uh, it, it was in the top five for, oh God, seven, eight weeks, uh, which is very in October, uh, which is not a good month in those days for releasing a film. Um, so, you know, uh, it's funny how things happen that are out of your control. Sure. And there's a lot, I mean, there's some other things there. Rambo gets a first name and a middle initial in the, yes, in the yes. film. Uh, it moves from Kentucky to the Pacific Northwest. Uh, there, 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 so there's those little changes. Uh, and then of course there's the larger changes as, as well, but it all works. That's, that's what I love uh, well, so much about both the book and the film. Well, you, you know, you, you, here's another example. And again, you know, your wonderful relationship with this showrunner for uh, terminal list. Uh, Andy phoned me one day and said, we think for financial reasons, we're going to make the movie in British Columbia to double for the Pacific Northwest in the United States. If we move the location from Kentucky, and what I wanted is a semi-southern, not cracker a barrel, but you know, with a slightly southern flavor to it. And he said, if we move to the Pacific Northwest, West, is there anything in the plot which will be destroyed? Mm. Now, what a smart man, right? And I said, no, it's fine. You can uh, no no difficulty at all. You you know you lose a little subtext, but you know it's not not worth worrying about given the larger issues. So again, another example of how you can sometimes have good cooperation. Oh yeah, and it, it's such a beautiful film, everything about it. Um, but getting back to the book, uh, how do you think being a Canadian? influenced your writing of this, of this first novel? It would it, it, uh, tremendously. I mean, people, uh, I, I have for now, I am an American citizen, but I retained Canadian citizenship. Um, so, um, it, it's, you're, you're, you're without question allowed to do this, but when you, when you receive the American citizenship, the pledge is that that is your dominant loyalty. And for business reasons, and I have relatives in in Canada, and there were good reasons to retain the citizenship. Um, 
No, I'm talking about the citizen. Oh, okay. So in 1966, when we moved to the United States, Vietnam was not in Canadian news. Hmm. Um, it was considered a, an American issue. Um, and um, so we came to the United States. Um, and my wife and I, and where our, uh, we then by then had a very small uh, baby daughter. And uh, so I arrive at Penn State, I meet fellow graduate students, and they're all worried about being drafted. Uh, and I'm saying, for what? <laughs> and now this was 66. All right. So the Gulf of Tonkin incident had occurred, and, and which is a whole other issue that one can talk about sure. whether it was actually that or not. Um, and uh, there, one of them was suggesting that somebody else shoot him in the foot or break his tooth. I don't know what the heck all they were going to mm -hmm. do to each other in order to have an injury that would prevent them from being uh, drafted. And so I had to learn, I began learning uh, about you know, what all this was. And of course, in the day before the internet, although, you know, God knows what's on the internet, <laughs> what, how much is reliable, but, you know, trying to figure out what was happening and why it was happening. Um, and then of course the, the protests uh, and, and a lot of these were affiliated with civil rights protests because a lot of blacks went to Vietnam because they didn't have the opportunity for the deferment that some people, whites of means did. Uh, and I, uh, I, it had been em, em, emphasized to me uh, when we crossed the border. And I don't object to this. I have, as a Canadian, if I go to someone's home, and they're talking about things that I disagree with. I'll make some polite noises and shut the <laughs> hell up. If I'm on the street with them, I don't consider the guest host relationship to be in effect anymore. Mm -hmm. And I will speak my mind. So that, that was the metaphor. So we are guests in a country. You do not have a right to voice opinions about political, whatever mm. matters. And we didn't. Again, you know, uh, uh, that Canadian kind of thing. And the consequence was that I, you know, it's the old, the old cliche of the fly on the wall, uh, that I'm watching all this unfold and having no public opinion about it, but I sure have a lot of thoughts. Uh, and so in some ways, I think that Rambo Teasel, Rambo Teasel, Rambo Teasel was a representation of uh, that structure was a representation of me back here mm -hmm. saying, you know, can't you guys just talk? <laughs> yeah. You know, and interestingly, when Richard Brooks, the initial film deal was with Columbia Pictures for Richard Brooks, a director, writer I admire greatly to do the picture. Uh, in Cold Blood, The Professionals, um, Elmer Gantry, great, great filmmaker. And I actually, uh, Columbia flew me out to meet with Brooks. And his, his, we had a difference, we had a falling out because his idea for the ending 
which was true to the theme, but would have been so <laughs> deadly, yeah. was that Rambo and Teasel would be talking and there'd be the military you know, and the police and all this over here and somebody, somehow a shot would occur. And that then would spook other people and they'd start shooting and Teasel would be in the middle of this. And he'd say, wait a minute, wait a minute. So he and Rambo would have to run and dive into a ditch. And as bullets kicked up the dirt, this is so horrible. I know. I'm, I... <laughs> they would kick up the dirt. Teasel would look at Rambo and say, it's, it, it, it's, it's so uh, I know. It's hard to even say. <laughs> it's to say none of this would have happened if only we tried to understand each other. <laughs> yeah. And then he said, what do you think? You know, and I, and uh, okay, I was a guest, but it's professional. And I said, <laughs> you know, I think that's not going to work. I don't think people are. And the next thing I knew, I was out on the street. Uh, that's a whole different story. Wasn't there a buzzer I, under I, the desk or something like yeah, that? <laughs> well, I, I maintain this. All of a sudden, the phone rang uh-huh. when I disagreed with him. I said, you know, this reminds me of a cavalry picture with the we, we now would say native americans but indian you know at the time and he said so there's the indians there's the cavalry and the the you know the hero and the indian are talking and a shot shot rang out right oh my god <laughs> and i said you know it sort of and he looked at me and then he he, he sort of leaned this way it was almost as if he was breaking wind <laughs> and the, and the phone rang now i have no way to prove this but i'm convinced he had a buzzer under his desk and that it would ring the phone, you know, so he was moving his knee in order to, and he picked it up and he said, yes, yes, yes. And he hung up and he said, my, I can't, my mother-in-law wants me to drive her to the airport. Thank you for coming. It's <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> so, and that's a whole other story, but yeah, but, you know, as I said, you know, over the years, I've, uh, I have to laugh at the story and I greatly admire him. And I'm so sorry. I never got to, you know, it never got on, but you know, and that's not to put down the existing movie. It's sure. like alternate realities. Sure. And things, uh, the, the progression of how this came to, came to be is, is, I mean, it's a, another book in and of itself, uh, really. But, uh, but you had a few things also that happened in there in the, the, the late sixties, early seventies. Uh, we had the Kent state shooting that influenced you riots yes. at the democratic convention in Chicago. Yes. Uh, and then there was an incident in, Pennsylvania in 1966, yes. a manhunt that became mm-hmm. known as the Shade Gap Incident. Um, how did yes. that play into to, to this? Oh, a big, a big deal um, because that had happened a little bit before my wife and I arrived in Pennsylvania. Penn State's in the center of Pennsylvania in a mountain valley, uh, not like your mountains or my mountains, uh, but, you know, Eastern mountains, maybe 5,000 mm. feet tall, maybe, but it's a mountain valley. Nonetheless, they call happy Valley and Penn state is there. It's very, very isolated in its way. Although it's it changed a little bit now. And I might've been 65, I, I, it, but it was shortly before we'd arrived and a mountain man, a, a real mountain man who I, I, you know, I guess, you know, living, I, I, I don't know how he was surviving up there, but he abducted a young woman. And took her back up there, and somehow people knew what had happened. So, at that time, the largest manhunt in Pennsylvania history occurred, where um, police and and uh, National Guard and all kinds of others. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people scouring um, the, the countryside, and 
it it didn't end well for him. Mm. Uh, but I remember reading about it, and when uh, the plot for First Blood occurred, and you and I have talked about um, Joseph Campbell mm. and the Hero with a Thousand Faces, which I know know influenced you as much as much as it did me, and his analysis of you can't follow this like a blueprint but it helps understand mm -hmm. stories his analysis of the structure of mythic mythic stories and 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 uh campbell had a, a an idea that stories the three-act structure could be a little bit like youth middle age and old age and the different perspectives you have or what happens in, in, in many lives is you grew up in a place, you go off and experience life, and then you come back to that place to discover it wasn't at all what you thought it was in your memory. So First Blood has a three-act structure, which is the town, the mountain, and the town. And, you know, separation, initiation, and return. It's, is how uh, uh, Joseph Campbell explains it. And uh, the... So I had to have, I'm thinking, you know, how's this going to work? And the shade gap incident then became, you know, sort of the model mm. that I knew in real life this could happen. Mm -hmm. And I knew, you know, there were stories about groups, you know, you know, bumping into each other and the confusion and all of that. So I, I knew there was a plenty of oppor believable opportunity for um, the kind of conflict that I would have in in the novel, so that was that was a a, a really important um, thing for me, and and uh, 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 I, I, for all I know, it still is the most you know the biggest manhunt in Pennsylvania history. Interesting. And then the uh, the name Rambo. I love the story of where it came from because now we have uh, this character uh, internationally known in thriller genre along with Tarzan, <laughs> James Bond, uh, Harry Potter, yeah. Sherlock Holmes, Rambo. And you're writing the story. At what point <laughs> in the narrative do you finally figure out the name? And did you have a placeholder in there before? Or was it just a couple X's? How did you uh, well, do that? Well, it was, it was blanks. I knew I wanted, uh, I didn't want him to have a first name. Uh, the, the movie adds the first name, but it's the logical name in the movie. In a sense, all return all returned veterans are when Johnny, Johnny comes marching home. He's Johnny. I mean, that's a given. Um, so if they wanted to do that, fine. And that's, and they wanted to soften the movie, wanted to soften the characters so much. So give a name, a first name, but not in, uh, the book. I wanted one name and, 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 you know, relentless force in it. And I couldn't think of it. Uh, and I'm writing the book and, uh, we, my wife and I were living in a one bedroom, one living room kitchen together, uh, student uh, 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 housing uh, unit and uh, we I had my little desk next to our daughter's crib and uh, the bed where my wife and I slept in. So she came back, we, we had very little money, but Penn State graciously had given me a, a scholarship. Basically, uh, they paid my tuition and gave me a little money uh, so I could afford to live there. And my wife came back and I remember we still talk about this. She, she pays 25 cents. All right. Now, how's this for an investment? She paid 25 cents when she and our daughter were driving somewhere and she saw a roadside apple stand. And so she paid 25 and she got a bag of apples. Now, 
I love to tell this story because it's so, this is Joseph Campbell stuff. The apple thing is so mythic. And so she comes home with the apples and, and I'm, you know, the genius at work. And I have like a blank spot for the guy's name. And I have pages and pages with his blank spot for the name. And she says, I bought some apples. It's a sat. I remember vividly it's about three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon because my life changed. <laughs> and she said, I bought these apples. Have one. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, you know, the genius. Working. Yeah. And she asked me again, and you know how it, how it can be. You say, oh, okay, you know, to get rid of somebody, you know, give me the apple. <laughs> so I bit into the apple and all that mythic resonance. And I did what anybody does in that circumstance. This tastes pretty good. What's it called? And she said, uh, Rambo. And I said, what? And she said, it's a Rambo apple. Now, a lot of people don't know about the Rambo apples. In Pennsylvania, in central Pennsylvania, it's a common variety. And when I, you know, I, I love to, to, to extend this. When Johnny Appleseed, uh, John Chapman, went through Pennsylvania, Indiana, and Ohio planting apple orchards, they were Rambo apple trees. It's a Scandinavian uh, 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 variety. And she said, Rambo. And I said, spell it, R-A-M-B-O. And I knew immediately. Now, uh, you know, some folks listening to this will say, oh, well, hell, anybody could do that. Somebody, you know, in Apple and blah, blah, blah. But you know, and I know that if you're a professional author, nothing goes by you that everything that happens to you, you're thinking, can I use it? <laughs> so uh, somebody who wasn't, who was a civilian, so to speak, um, would have said, oh, that's an interesting name and have gone back saying, why can't I find a name for this character? Uh, but, you know, be, being a, a kind of vacuum cleaner, um, I said, yeah, that was it. And, you know, so 25 cents, um, you know, <laughs> Dividend on the investment. Wow. <laughs> I mean, incredible. I mean, it's uh, imagine if she hadn't stopped for those apples that day, what you would well, have come up with, maybe, or what would have. Well, it, well uh, yeah, well, Macintosh is always a joke. Somebody says <laughs> it, you know, it don't wasn't do taken it, yet. Macintosh. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't taken yet. Uh, but, you know, th uh, in any career, and uh, we've not, you know, another time, you know, in your career, I'm sure. Uh, just as in mind, sometimes things happen that are inexplicable, that they happen exactly when they should. And I, you know, I'm a fatalist and, and I tend not to, uh, uh, I think that's probably the wrong word, uh, but I, you know, I guess I embrace chaos theory I, mm. and I'm, you know, I, so I have trouble believing in it, in a, a pattern, um, but it, sometimes things have happened that I have to say, wow. How, how did that occur? Incredible. And the names are so important. And I love how you write about picking names for characters before you're starting the book. So you don't have names that start with the same letter, end with the same letter, sound the same rhyme, all that sort of end in an S, well, like all those sorts of things, the advice that you give, uh, which, which, I, I, which I do. Um, and sometimes I put placeholders in there because I'm not sure, but then I get yes. to know the character as that name and that yeah. placeholder ends and that's, up the character. It's very hard. And so at the start, I often, I go through this that, uh, um, I, I, um, I have seen, um, books where the names are so similar, 
um, that I can't imagine why they didn't change them. Um, and, and I'm, um, I'm reading a novel now where two female characters, their names begin, both begin with the same three vowels mm. beginning with L they're Italian beginning with L and ending with a that's tough, but the middle, but you know, it all conflates and I can't keep one straight from the other. Yeah. And, you know, and now minor characters, all right. You know, if you got, got somebody on page five and somebody on 105 and they're walk-ons and they have a similar, not, nobody's going to go crazy about that. But if you have main characters mm-hmm. and they, and their names have this, I try to have uh, one syllable, two syllable, three syllable names. And I try to have them of uh, the major characters all begin with a different first name, a first letter, and end with a different last letter. I mean, it, I mean, it just seems to me academic. It, you know, it's just pretty obvious. But not everybody does that. But I do on my writing page. I have a, on my website. I have a little thing about yep. doing. Oh no, no, it's fantastic. I put them at the top of my outline. All the names, even if they're placeholders, uh, and just have yeah. them there and there, and then their position, what they where they are, and the, what they're going to do in the story. Um, but I don't know them yet. Uh, unless it's a recurring yeah. character, I get to know them through the dialogue they have with one another, uh, which is one of the, the, the funnest parts for me, uh, the most fun parts for me, just because I don't know them yet. And then they, they emerge as I'm writing their personalities come out as I'm writing them, which I love, but, uh, but there's something else that's interesting. And I, and I, I don't know if I've told you where James Reese comes from. Um, and if I haven't, I'll tell you afterward, um, because I don't, uh, I don't really talk about it, but, uh, yes. but it comes from, uh, uh, it wasn't an intentional try. This part wasn't intentional because when I tell you the story uh, offline, uh, you'll see, but James Reese, John Rambo, uh, Jack yeah. Reacher, Jack yes. Ryan, that there's yes. something to that JR thing. Now, that certainly wasn't <laughs> you know, intentional, uh, at all. Uh, Lee, Lee child said that too. Lee child once, uh, in a, I was on a forum with him and he was talking about this. It's a very odd, uh, uh, somehow, you know, is, is this somehow in the English language archetype? Well, I have no idea, uh, but it is, uh, it, you know, it shows up a lot. Yeah. And that was completely unintentional. And you'll see, cause it's connected to, to do things in my, in my actual life. But, um, uh, I was also wanted to ask you about your, the influence of Westerns. Um, you're a big fan of mm. watching Westerns. You grew up with them. We talked about Audie Murphy, uh, playing in Westerns, acting in them after his experience mm. in world war II. Um, some of your books are very clearly influenced by, uh, by Westerns. Um, yes. did films or, or even books, uh, Westerns, uh, influence first blood in particular? Oh, without question. Um, now, you know, we'll, we'll go back. Remember even when my mother remarried, you know, I was, it's not like today where if, you know, you said that to a 10 year old, go to the movies, you know, you get arrested, you know, <laughs> if, if you didn't take them, but I would walk, you know, a half mile to a movie theater and, you know, and I'd go in and I often lied. I think, you know, the story that I would hang around a, a young outside a movie theater and I'd look for a man and woman who weren't wearing wedding rings and, and it, for a reason I'll explain. And then I'd come up to him and I'd say, I have the money to get into the theater but they won't let me in. Will you buy my ticket? Pretend I'm with you. I promise you'll never see me again once I'm in there. Uh, and the point that they weren't married was that she would look at him. <laughs> Genius. You know, to see, you know, I was a street kid and, <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I learned out early to, and I really was a street kid. And, and 
so I got into a lot of movies that maybe I wouldn't have been able to see. But one of one of the first movies I saw unattended is a movie called The Last Wagon with Richard Widmar, um, Delmer Daves directed and wrote. Terrific film. Uh, and that begins, uh, uh, years later, I saw the movie. I just remembered seeing it. But years later, I, I, I have a copy now, and I'm looking at it, and it starts with this man charging through the forest and this posse chasing him. And, and now I look at it, and I say, it's first blood. Mm -hmm. It's the middle of first blood, and that this movie imprinted itself on me. Um, there's a movie called uh, The Sheep Man with Glenn Ford. Um, and in, now it's a sort of comedy. Mm. It's, it, there's a lot of serious, but it's also somewhat funny in which Glenn Ford plays the sheep man and keeps getting run out of town because it's a cattle town. Uh, but he comes back and he comes back. And he comes back. And, and I remember when I was running this, I said, wait a minute, this is sort of like the sheep man. Uh, and deliberately in the shootout at, in the town at the end of First Blood, I was echoing the gunfight at the end of High Noon. That traveling gunfight, the way you know it goes here and there. And, and uh, um, so, I mean, those are three at least that come to mind. And and I think you've heard me talk about how if you step back from First Blood, it can be interpreted as a modern Western about a modern gunfighter who, who isn't allowed to hang up his guns. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a little bit, there's a, a wonderful movie called The Gunfighter with Gregory Peck. Mm -hmm. um, uh, oh, just an extraordinary film. It's black and white. It's, it's almost like High Noon. They kind of there's a kind of parallel because there's a clock on the wall there yeah. too. And this was the origin of the trope of the gunman who at the time, you know, it was, he, he, he got into it and it was kind of exciting, but now he said, no, this, I went wrong. And he returns, you know, to try to make peace with his wife who's left him and try to see if he can't rearrange his life and they won't let him. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's the start of the trope, which is then repeated again and again and again in later uh, Westerns. So there's a lot of, you know, what, what I saw, and I think partly because of my age and because in the 50s, which is when I grew up, Westerns were, the, were a dominant form. Um, so without question, and they still influence me. And as, as you know, I'm writing a Western now. I, um, I sort of, I decided after all these years, I finally decided at what I've been doing, which is going through the genres and exploring them. And, you know, A Brotherhood of the Rose, which is an espionage novel, and First Blood, which is outdoor action. I mean, they're very different mm -hmm. books. And yet I think people know they can recognize the same guy wrote them. And I've written Creepers, uh, which is the same thing in horror. And then, of course, uh, uh, Murders of Fine Art and the related books about, you know, my Victorian mystery thriller okay. series. Um, and so now I'm, you know, I've been working on a Western very difficult mm. because there are so many cliches mm. uh, uh, more than any other genre that I, that I'm aware of and how do you sidestep them, invent substitutes and create the same emotion. Cause there's a reason those cliches 
persist mm. because of the certain emotions they right. create. So how can I create those emotions? And so I've been working on this darn thing for two years, which is not my, I, normally I can do a book maybe every year and three months. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I'm, I'm of, of late as I age, I didn't stick to it. You know, that schedule that you're on where you're on, the same time every mm-hmm. year, which the people, unless they're doing, but don't understand how truly hard that is to do. Yeah. A lot of respect for how you're sticking with that schedule. Thank you. It's uh, I'm constantly exhausted. And, <laughs> and and thinking of which, uh, because we were talking about me, you, the next book comes out when this one is May seventeenth. So right before the anniversary okay, of well, First Blood. Not. Yeah, I was going to say five. Well, how? Oh, this is wonderful. Your your career makes me smile because you've been so kind to acknowledge my influence on you, which is not, uh, frankly, normal. Um, most authors w- w- seem, in one fashion or another, to pr- want to pretend they came from, you know, they were full blown. <laughs> and uh, and and your your work, I, I, I said this earlier, is distinguished among many other things. The, believable characters and fresh situations and and i and and reactions to you know attitudes that are now um but uh you you have uh in subtle ways that real fans of the genre can recognize in subtle ways have echoes and acknowledgments of and again we go back to what it remind me of the four there's household and you're kind enough to mention me uh stephen hunter is is that one of them uh, that's certainly a, a huge influence but in that particular book yeah. in savage sun uh first blood in particular rogue male in particular most dangerous game in particular yes and yes uh, last of the breed louis lamour in particular those the- oh certainly certainly and and you know you might be interested that carol co for a time had an option on last of the breed as a Rambo film. It, it, there's so uh, and, many parallels. Uh, and I saw that yes. and I read it back because I read them in the same, about the same time, uh, maybe a year mm-hmm. apart. Maybe it was the same summer, but it was certainly close together. Um, and uh, I, gosh, as a little kid, of course, I'm thinking, wow, I can't believe they haven't made a movie of this. I wish. And that would have been the perfect yeah. time to do it as well, right in the mid 80s right there. They almost, they almost did it. I can't remember why. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if Andy ever explained why they decided to move ahead, uh, but it would have been really good. Um, it might have been the difficulties of shooting in the snow mm. uh, uh, because the Rambo 3, uh, the novelization makes clear, the original Rambo 3 script had a long mountain snow sequence where they went and escaping went over the mountains. And the, and a lot of the combat was in uh, in uh, in snowy blizzardy conditions, I, I I you know it would have maybe been too expensive, but I got to use it in, <laughs> in the novelization. Um, but uh, yeah, that, and and in the three the four there that you mentioned, and again I I feel very gratified to be included. Those are places. I mean, anybody who's writing thrillers and isn't aware, and you know, and and prior to that. Uh, Riddle of the Sands mm-hmm. is is the is the book which in some ways started everything, uh, and you can see where household and and to a degree, um, uh, most dangerous game not, maybe not so much but certainly household uh, comes and you know and and uh, as as you're aware I I co-edited a book called Thrillers 100 Must Reads mm-hmm. with Hank Wagner, and uh, Hank and I in, in consultation with 
many people who are acknowledged experts in the thriller form came up with 100 titles that really everybody should read if they're going to go into the genre and then persuaded and you would have in the day you would have been invited but you know that back in 2009 uh actually eight and seven not uh, for obvious reasons that you know you hadn't happened um but people like lee child mm -hmm. and sandra brown and uh, i mean it, oh, it's yeah, really amazing. extraordinary right the, all the and they donated they donated their work for free to help uh, international thriller writers. Um, imagine these stars doing that. Um, and there are too many to name without, you know, and even then by mentioning those two other people are going to be left out and I uh, feel left out and I'm sorry. Um, and, um, and the idea was that they would write about a thriller that influenced them. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, if somebody's looking for, a, you know, a, a list of must must read books those are or thrillers those are the oh ones. yeah no i love the commentary and you'd, you'd be 101 oh, thank you okay. sincerely appreciate it <laughs> i mean i think about this every time i for certainly for the first novel for every one after and the one i'm working on right now is how is this going to move the genre forward and your first yes. blood certainly did everything you've done because you move to another genre and you move that one forward um so i think about that as i sit down to write and think about hey i'm going to spend the next year year to three months on this project how am i going and this is what i owe my my readers those who are trusting me with their time that time they're never going to get yes. back how am i going to move this genre forward even if it's just by a degree um but that is constantly in my mind and then in particular for the first book in finding my own voice uh i thought about what you say be don't be a be a first rate version of yourself not a second rate version yes. of somebody else uh and that's one, very freeing to uh one of the things one of the things you did uh from the get-go was i don't know if you're doing it now in, in the what and what's the title of the next the, one the, i'm gonna i'm gonna help you promote that, thank here. you so much well, the one coming out is <laughs> in may is in the blood and that's number five okay. and then the one i'm working on now is number six uh with a classified title well, uh, yeah, of course, but in the blood, first blood, I like it. Um, uh, but um, you're gonna like it a lot more, uh, I think. When you there's, uh, I'm not gonna want to spoil it for you, but there's uh, there's uh, more than a subtle nod uh, to, uh, to to something you've done in the past. So anyway, okay, I, I cannot wait. As you know, I read them immediately. Um, but what you did, I don't know if you're doing it in the in this one, but you did this remarkable forward. Uh, to the terminal list, but you said this is a book about revenge. revenge. And I thought, wow, you know, uh, I'm reminded of Stephen King at the start of the of Salem's Lot. Everyone thought, everyone thought the man and boy were father and son. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes there are certain senses just announced. And I remember, you know, opening, this is a book about revenge. I thought, how can I not read? I mean, the clarity and directness of the statement. And you did that in later books. Um, and of course, after a certain point, you know, you run out of this is a book about, <laughs> you know, statements. But I, you know, I had for the Victorian books, uh, forwards to short ones, you know, in which I, you know, this is a book about British Railroad. Mm. And this is the history of the railroad. And did, did it in a way that I hope was, was interesting. Because, uh, you know, there was a death on the first railroad uh, uh, the short railroad uh, mission, whatever trip uh, in England. Um, and then I, I had taken, as you do, to having afterwards to try to, it's, it can be difficult if a book ends powerfully 
as opposed to a falling action mm -hmm. and, and lyrically, um, it can be difficult to make the segue to an afterword without muting the emotion. Uh, it's, you know, it's a technical issue, but uh, your afterwards are, as I try to do, to bring the reader into sort of, okay, this is what, what, this, what the story behind the story, which people like, and also the reading material that, that somebody might go to. Oh yeah. As a, as a reader and as a fan, uh, I, I love those and I love those growing up and I still enjoy them today. And when someone doesn't have something like that at the end, I'm always like, ah, I wish I wish there was a little something. It's here, true. A little, a little nugget. It's true. Uh, a couple of books where I liked so much and I want it, you know, but it wasn't there. And I was, okay, it's a choice. I'm not going to be bitter about it, but I would have preferred. Sure. sure. And uh, it's, it's still astounding to me how many authors out there I talk to who are uh, not students of their own genre. Um, well, that's another matter. And it's a disappointment to me and, um, that, um, that they they're not as you are you know you could write if you if you needed to you don't have the time but you could write a history of the genre um and um but many of them uh have a scattered approach I, years ago i met a jazz pianist named oscar peterson uh he's canadian uh, in addition great great uh, I, I don't know if anybody talks about him anymore one of the greats and uh my wife and i would go uh to Toronto from Kitchener Waterloo to watch him play because he was from Toronto when he wasn't touring. And uh, he, one day we were there and we were underage. You had to be 21. And we, I think we were 19 or 20, but the, you know, some, the, the, the waiter took pity on this. <laughs> and uh, especially if we tipped nicely. And, and anyway, he came along and God, he had big hands. He had like twice the size of a normal hand. So he could do the octaves and all. And uh, as I spoke to him, he stopped at the table. And as I spoke to him, I realized that he had started as a classical pianist. Mm. He was classically trained. And then he had morphed over into being a, uh, a jazz, imp an improviser, but with the technical background and know what he was improvising. And I had a, 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 I have some friends who were trio who went to the oscar peterson jazz school mm. that they had periodically for other and uh, ray brown one of the the bassist for for uh, oscar uh was listening to a trio play and the, and it, i and i knew these people and they said yeah we were all done and brown said are you going to let him get away with playing the f when it should have been a g and he you know, he had heard that much and that it was wrong, even though it was jazz. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, it, this was a revelation to me because I realized that all my schooling, I mean, I have a doctorate in literature and I was a, a professor um, and I'm writing. One of the difficulties I had in my career was people expected that a professor in American literature would write academic novels. But I didn't. I wrote popular novels with an academic undertone. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it confused people, but uh, I, I, I realized then how unusual I was. And now to turn it, turn it back to what I was saying to you, you didn't have the benefit of going to graduate school and all, but you gave your own graduate school. You have, you know, you schooled yourself, I'm going to do this, but that's what I would expect from a professional in the military. You know, if I'm going to do this, 
I'm going to, you know, what's the background? How do we, you know, what mistakes, what, and all good things were, were made back here. And then I can build on it. And I'm sure it would be fascinating one day just to have someone invite you to a conference and say Jack Carr is going to talk about thrillers. I love that. I love and, it. That's one of my you know, favorite things to talk about. Uh, yeah, I feel very fortunate that I got to because my mom was a librarian, so I grew up surrounded by books and a love oh. of reading. She's still a librarian uh, to this day. Um, but it was a natural part of our life, just like eating or breathing or just uh, exercise, whatever it might be. Reading was a natural part of our life. It wasn't something that was forced on us. It was just very natural. And so I got to read all these books growing up, uh, and I didn't jump in. Let's say at age forty. 45 or even 35, whatever it might mm -hmm. be, and then start back. You know, what should I have been reading for the last 35 years or 40 years? Uh, I had this built very naturally from uh, from my youngest days. And I got to read uh, your books. I got to read Last of the Breed. I got to, to read The Most mm -hmm. Dangerous Game uh, without uh, a lens that was maybe tarnished by cynicism or my own experience in life or whatever it might be. I got to read these with the, the pure joy and magic of reading. Um, and I, that's what I'm trying to do today to, for people and, as and well. That, and the dismissives in some cases for um, popular fiction mm -hmm. and what at its best it can do. Um, now, my, my background was entirely different. There were no books in our house. Mm. Um, and um, my, my, my stepfather, and my, my mother was a seamstress. My mother, and later a leather upholsterer in a, in a furniture factory. My father, my stepfather was a, a machinist in a in a, a factory uh and there were no books uh and they didn't get along they fought a lot and i went to the library every saturday i mean young very young and i spent the day there roaming and going here and there and then my primary initial love was movies because that's you know where my mm -hmm. one of my escapes was and then that after a while, I realized these things often came from books. And uh, believe me, when I decided to go to college, which is a big surprise mm. in, in, uh, uh, to my mother and stepfather, and when I decided to major in English, which is no longer, you know, the, 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 in colleges, the English enrollments are going like that. Uh, and, you know, it's not supposed to be practical, mm. but I assume that anytime you can learn to communicate, this is a good thing. Um, and, uh, and that, you know, the greater mystery when I went to get an MA and a doctorate in literature, like there was, and my, my step, my mother, my mother's God, my, too many people, my wife's stepfather who disliked me because I, I was going to school and he thought he, he belittled me all the time. He'd say, you know, you know, firemen are better than you, which they are. Uh, but, you know, he would pick various and say, you know, that he was just, and oddly enough, only when the movie came out, <laughs> did I, did I have respect <laughs> in the family because they thought, Oh, well, that's where it was going. Well, not necessarily, yeah. but it, it did work out that way. Uh, so books for me were an escape and a salvation. Yeah, no, I, I feel so fortunate that I had this foundation from a very early age uh, and knew what I wanted to do, had that that passion, uh, never any question about what I was going to do later in life. So to have that foundation to build upon, uh, built up over yeah. all those years, decades now, um, I, I 
I think think about my mom and thank her every single every single day. Yes. Uh, then my dad encouraged it as well. I mean, he was they both encouraged reading, but it was natural. It wasn't forced. Uh, great memories yeah. on the couch, even when them reading to 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 me as a kid. So I still remember remember those times. Um, there was one real world event that happened in New Mexico where you live now uh, that also influenced mm. uh, First Blood, and it was an, an event where uh, people with long hair and beards were passing through town, and yes. they did get shaved. Yeah, that's right. Um, and again, um, you know, when the movie came out in seven and 82, um, and Sly has hair down below his ears, somewhat close mm-hmm. to his, he doesn't have the beard. Um, but I, but, you know, Brian Dennehy, I'm paraphrasing, uh, says to Rambo, um, you know, like guys who look like you mm-hmm. coming to town and, uh, I was in the back. I snuck in when the in Iowa City where I taught. Um, so I didn't distract. I wanted to watch the audience. And the men in the audience all had long hair. And many of them had beards. And I saw several look at someone else and heard, well, what's wrong with the way he looks? Because Rambo looked like every guy <laughs> in the movie audience. Right. And, I, and it was a moment when I, my, my spirit sank because I thought um, if they might not believe the antagonism mm-hmm. because a lot of it's based upon the way someone looks. And, but then, you know, we get the police station scene and then everything's forgotten, right, right, you know, right. be, uh, that, that moment, because it's so well done and Jerry Goldsmith's oh. music must be given, you know, and, and get Ted Koch's direction, of course. Um, and, uh, but in 1968, if you had long hair, if you had a beard or you had, and I didn't have real long hair, I, 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 it's, I um, but I had the mustache. I, 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 I'm kind of tired and I like to get rid of it. My <laughs> wife refuses because I'm, that's the only, you know, she knows, yeah. you know, uh, you were going to have trouble. Mm-hmm. You were going to have trouble every time you walk down the street, not only from police officers, but from people of a certain generation mm-hmm. and people in their forties and fifties. And that might be, you know, hard to believe, but I'm telling you, uh, I mean, for you know, listeners, yeah, yeah. I'm, you're aware because you, you know the background. It, but for some listeners, it was a palpable phenomenon, uh, and um, in some ways, I never got mm. over it. Uh, I still have a suspicion of authority figures no. uh, for that for that reason. Um, uh, but um, you, you know, and for and on the cover of the initial first blood paperback in the united states yeah isn't that a wonderful the the drawing uh at the top uh, i'm told that that uh, the author or that the artist eventually sold that drawing i would have i would have bought i know it. where it is but he has a beard and long hair you do, I do my friend got it his wife found ah. it on ebay about this time last year oh and it's uh evan hafer 
Who knew? Former special for Who he's knew? Former special forces um, operator. Well, he, and he. I hope he's treasuring. He is. It. He is. He is such a um, huge fan. Uh, and he has um, it in his. He started Black Rifle Coffee, and he has this. Yes. In yes. His office. Yes. Which you have an affiliation yep, with. Yeah. Uh, well, that's extraordinary. Uh, that uh, uh, I mean, one of the great. Uh, you know, a lot of artwork these days is uh, is digitally assembled for books, but you know that one. And there's a British one. Do you have the British one with the hand? I don't have the hand. Uh, No, the one with the rifle. Uh, it, it's. Uh, uh, I don't think so. I have I, trade I, later. Okay. This one with looks like Stallone, and then yeah, it is paperback yeah. right there. So uh, 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 there's a British one. Which has, which is very gritty. Mm. It's like a hand oh, with a that. knit yes. on it, but with a with that the 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 finger parts of the mitt are gone. We see, and there's a rifle in his hand. It's as if he's been, it is if he's dead, and the rifle is in his hand. It's an extraordinary uh, art uh, rendering, mm-hmm. and you know, it never occurred to me that I should be going on eBay <laughs> and know. looking for some of this. And his stuff. wife found it and said, "Hey." Do you think you might like this? Did she say what she paid? Uh, I don't know off the top of my Did head, but I'll find out for paid? you. It was not what you, we would think. <laughs> I know. it's No, I, I, if it was $30, it was probably. Lot, <laughs> you know? But it's beautiful. It's framed and it, he has it in a place of honor. And um, yeah. Well, t- wish, tell him I wish him the sure best will. that he has good taste. Because, <laughs> uh, I mean, a part, it's just a wonderful uh, piece it of really art. It really is. It's it, it's absolutely absolutely stunning, and I do want to read something from from this. I, and I love all these editions. I love the Gauntlet Press editions that I have right here, all three. And uh, and this one is written by the editors of this uh, of this trade yes. right here. And it's so interesting. That's the latest okay, one right here. And uh, it came out right about yes. the time as Murder is a Fine Art, which is a great title. I love that title murder is a fine art from that series uh, I, I loved writing those Fantas- books oh, incredible but this is from the editors and uh you know obviously this is this many years after the uh the first and everything else that transpired after mm-hmm. but they write this they say is it possible for a book to be too successful sometimes a book is eclipsed by its own fame by the time hollywood makes the movie people forget how good the novel really was first blood is such a book a novel that created a cultural icon in the character of John Rambo, a masterful blend of stylish prose, furious action, and a brooding mood that struck a chord with the American psyche. First Blood reveals more about us than any other popular novel of its time. For those of you who first read this book back in 1972, prepare to relive the ride of your life. For those of you who didn't, we envy you your first venture into the world of First Blood. God, that's moving. It's very, very moving. It really is. Um, in the in the paperback, do you have the paper? You have the paperback again. The first one, that one. Look, there's a similar note right on the inside, much shorter. Let's see right here. Oh, right here in the beginning. Ah, oh, yes. We envy you the experience of reading this book for the first time. The editors. Yeah, I love that. I'd never seen that before. I mean, it's so humbling. Wow. Um, you know, because people. Many people work forever on, you know, things they love, not, you know, novels or what have you. And they're not fortunate because Hemingway talked about uh, talent, discipline and and luck. Um, And luck can't be discounted. Uh, And uh, some people just have bad luck. And, um, you know, to, to have had this experience and often it, you know, often I, I'm sort of disassociate. 
and it's as if it happened to somebody else. You know, it's, it's the professor and me looking at um, this phenomenon. And then I have to, Sly told me the same thing. Uh, that, and then all of a sudden it clicks in his mind. He said, wait a minute, you know, I'm involved with that. Uh, and uh, I think it's a good thing because uh, we, we, we know some folks who are successful who are maybe not wearing it mm. well. <laughs> uh, 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 but, you know, it, I think it's, you just say, you know, uh, the work was there, yes, but other things. And so I'm, you know, I, I've, I've used this word a lot. I am humbled by it. As am, as am I. And it's, uh, I write a new foreword to, there's a new hardcover. There's three editions coming out of Terminalist this um, this June. And three. three. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, one's, a, one's a paperback with Chris Pratt on the cover. One's a trade paperback uh-huh. with Chris Pratt on the cover. And the other is a hardcover uh, with, a co- with the original cover with some new copy on there about, about the series, but with the original cover. And that hardcover, I wrote a new foreword for. And I okay. talk about uh, luck. And I talk about luck being the residue oh, of yeah. preparation. And I talk about all the things that led up to both the book and then the series and uh it was it was really fun to to write and i'm really excited to have that uh i've not i've not heard recently of any book being given that honor because it's not so long ago the hardback was released 2018 and now to have another i mean four years a brand new hardback that's astonishingly wonderful uh uh, and uh, and to have you know three different editions, we would have expected. I mean, well, in, in a successful business, you know that that the, there are a couple the, here. There. The, <laughs> well, uh, uh, yeah, I, I'll, you know, but that's over a period of years. But you know, within four years to have, uh, and it's to think it's only been 2018. You know, and, and when we first met in 2019, you know, it was still. And a lot of things happened since then oh, yeah. for you. It's been a, it's been quite the quite the journey, and uh, but I'm I'm enjoying every. I feel so fortunate each and every day when I when I wake up and when I go to bed and uh, to be juggling all this. I feel extremely fortunate that to have a character that resonates as 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 you know. Uh, and it and it does and it. Does. But yours took on a life of its own. That's uh that that must be a very interesting thing to to well, see happen and evolve uh, based off a character that you well, developed and created, but then have it go in these different directions. Well, here, here's, here's another story. Um, in, in 2001, um, I went, uh, my wife went with me, uh, to Poland, uh, for a book tour. Uh, you know, imagine, I mean, I, I was just really thrilled that uh, my wife is Polish. And to, to be invited by and to have them pay for both of us to come to Poland and to, you know, go and, uh, and, and they, the Polish people speak English very well. Uh, and uh, I just, I, to this day, I just admire and, and you know, remember f- fondly the whole experience. The journalists were unusually interested in talking to me. Uh, I had two full days of interviews of 15 minutes, sometimes no more than a half hour interviews. Now, everybody wants to be loved. Everybody wants the attention. If you're a writer, how else are people going to know about your book? This was not normal. When former President Clinton 
uh, came to Poland at the same time I did. I had the presidential suite, <laughs> and he had another one in that in that hotel, and. I was above the fold on the front page and he was below the fold on the front page. So what the heck was going on? And a young, a woman of about, we have to remember 2001, uh, she'd have been early thirties, Polish journalist, very smart. And she looked at me and she says, you're puzzled, aren't you? <laughs> I said, yeah, I, uh, what's going on? And this is not, you know, and she said, well, I guess no one explained to you the relationship of, of Rambo to the solidarity movement, mm -hmm. which for those who aren't familiar was the demonstrations that eventually led to Poland and other countries, now countries, no, the, the dissolution of the USSR, uh, which it seems to be trying to be reassembled at mm -hmm. the moment, but another, another subject. Um, she said, um, she was part of the demonstrations, just why I mentioned the age, she would have been, you know, college equivalent student. She said the Rambo movies were illegal in Poland, um, but that copies were smuggled in, in VHS format. And they, she herself, and she knew of other groups who watched the movies put on the bandana and went out to demonstrate. And so she said to me, it's a chilling story. She said to me, so in a way, Rambo helped bring down the Soviet Union. Now you can't prove any of this because it's an anecdotal thing, but um, it makes sense. And I was reminded when the Berlin Wall came down, somebody had black spray printed Rambo on the wall. Um, so the character had you know, morphed in different, he's like a litmus test on what you bring to the character mm -hmm. in terms or what you take away in terms of what your goals are. And as we know, some people just think of him as a being, a, you know, out of control right. and all that. And others of course, see him as uh, with those young men whom I, spent very serious time with in the mm -hmm. hospitals in uh, the DC area who had been influenced in, in other ways. And um, that, you know, that, that doesn't happen often. That's, and again, it's partly of when the stories occurred when I was in England and I'd have to go back and look at the, date of the event I'm going to refer to. So I can't give you the specific year. I was in England promoting, again, the publisher kindly had me go to England to promote, to promote my books there. And I was on the equivalent of the Today Show. Mm -hmm. And just before I went on, I looked at a morning paper in London that said, U.S. Rambo Jets Bomb Libya. Yeah. So you can imagine where the interview went. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, but to have a, a name, uh, and I, you know, I see the name all the time in novels or on television or in movies or what have you. And you know, and uh, I was just reading about um, Bruce Willis, who uh, I gather sadly has aphasia, yeah. 
and of course, you know, the significance of Die Hard as yeah. a movie, and and how uh, you know in the history of movies we have First Blood, then we have Die Hard, in terms of you know the big action film, and uh, a, a, the constant action which hadn't been done before, and a character in that in Die Hard says to him, "Who do you think you are, Rambo?" Uh, you know, so you get if you you know if you study these things, it's like you know a constant thread. Um, but uh, anyhow, those those stories strike me about uh, you know as I said to those young men in the hospital, what do I bear responsibility for you having been injured so severely? And them saying no, they would have done it. You know, they'd go back. Uh, but you know, we we. Uh, uh, there's a line in uh, Stephen Sondheim. I'm a big mm -hmm. fan of, uh, and uh, you know, um, in a in a in a musical called Into the Woods, uh, a character says, "Sings, be careful what you say. Children will listen." Mm -hmm. And you know, so that whatever we write, uh, and you said the word which is a word that I uh, react to because it's why I became a novelist. I wanted to influence. I wanted to, uh, uh, Sterling Siliphant's work for St Route 66 had changed my life. And I became fortunately uh, friends with Sterling, uh, gratefully, wonderful man. Uh, but he had affected me so much, it opened my life. Mm -hmm made me see things I wasn't aware of and think of things I hadn't, wasn't aware of and see stories in a different way. And I thought, wow, what a wonderful thing. Wouldn't that be great to be able to do that? And it's why I became a writer. Of course, then you got to ask yourself, is that about ego? Is that about trying to, you know, exert over someone or is it uh, an eagerness to share? Uh, uh, and, you know, so these are questions that novelists have to ask themselves, but um, and you said at the very beginning of our conversation about, you know, that when you started that you, that, and you, I think you said that I had influenced oh, yes. you and you wanted to, and that's a very powerful word. Mm -hmm. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I saw what you had done, were doing, of course, when the Brotherhood of the Rose comes out, that's right in some of my most formative, formative years right there. Mm. Um, and I knew I wanted to write and I wanted to serve my country in the military, those two things. And I do get these same uh, messages today. Um, now it's so e much easier for people to reach out to you, obviously, with the advent of social oh, media. Yes. Um, and uh, for good and for bad, but um, uh, better for worse, I guess, at the same time. But uh, people say, hey, I'm, my son is joining the military. He loves your novels. You're inspired him. Mm -hmm. And now it's much more than the novels because of this social media and people can find out about your background and they want to engage with you. Um, and so you're mm -hmm. sharing much more than just the novel. You're sharing your, your life in many, in many cases with some, some boundaries and some barriers there, of course, that are mm -hmm. appropriate. But, uh, but I get those too. And I think of you in that position, influence an entire generation, uh, essentially of, of war fighters, uh, me being one of them. Um, but now I'm getting those same messages. Uh, and I'm not hearing them anecdotally. I'm hearing them direct from yes, the yes. person. And I think, oh, man, I just don't, I, you know, I was going to go join the military regardless. Uh, there were, then yes. there were going to be other cultural influences that were going to encourage me to do that one way or another. My path was set because it's in my DNA and these other cultural influences, um, were going to help propel, propel me along that, that journey. So, um, so I do think of it in those terms as well. And, you know, we can live our lives 
hidden under a rock and not influence anyone ever well, and be very safe. Uh, or we can answer a calling. And I looked at both the military yes. and writing as a calling. Uh, and I was going to listen to that calling, much like uh, we talked about Joseph Campbell and that call that call to yes. action. Uh, usually a reluctant type of a hero, but listens to that call. And I listened to that call from the military and, uh, and, uh, and, and to be a writer. And they're both, both passions, but they were both callings. Um, and you're reflective about it, uh, which is the important you know, thing. I try to be, try to be, try to be thoughtful. I think that's what I owe my, uh, owe my readers. And then, and today people that follow yes. you on social and it's there at the same time, without question, oh. it's there. Your work stands oh, apart. Thank you so much. But I do want to talk a little bit more about the, the film, um, the cast, obviously Sylvester Stallone, Brian Dennehy, Richard Crenna, incredible, but there were uh, a few attempts and making it a film, Stanley Kramer. We talked about Richard Brooks with a buzzer under the desk. Um, <laughs> with the, <laughs> that might be me. He certainly. I love it. That I think way. I'm going to incorporate that into a future novel. It's uh, <laughs> it's fantastic. Uh, but uh, then there was uh, Sidney Pollack directing. Steve McQueen starring possibly as Rambo ended up being too old. Uh, Kirk Douglas was almost almost Samuel Troutman right up. Uh, spent and, a week, I think, on set in in uniform, set. doing all that. There's a poster uh, art work of him on it. Uh, Gene Hackman was talked about being in there. Uh, Paul Newman yes. was talked about. Uh, there were 26 scripts. Uh, so it, it was quite the journey in this uh, this 10 years between publication and the the film um, coming out. But uh, what was that journey like, especially as a as a, a young author? Your first novel takes off. It has all these reviews. It has that amazing, horrible review from Time Magazine we talked about, but that really is the one that stands out. But a, but a good out. review exactly. on its way. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And I think the negative reviews uh, often help <laughs> more than they hinder. Um, but uh, even today, for different things. But um, that that whole journey having all those directors that you admired and that you knew about and had these yes. histories and then to, to end up where it did. Uh, when you reflect on, on that journey, what are your, what are your thoughts? Well, it, it, it's a good thing. Um, I, I do have to say, I go back, I met Sidney Pollock. Sidney Pollock in an odd way is Richard Brooks. Um, they, at a time when uh, independent minded directors, such as Francis Ford Coppola, um, it's, you know, mindful of the of the Godfather anniversary uh, that uh, where you had very distinctive independent, well, not always independent, but they felt that way. And they had a but but Brooks and Pollock directed what looked like studio mm -hmm. films from the golden age in the 40s and the 50s. Uh, Brooks was was, in fact, an MGM, you know, a product. And I think if Sydney had lived earlier he would have been an mm. they looked like mgm yeah. movies and i deeply admire his films and he's not a you know both of them didn't have a, an identity in their direction because they directed different kinds of mm. films you know we have sydney doing out of africa the way we were and jeremiah johnson you know it's like in a way like my career like you know doing the kinds of stories that you you want to explore but he himself told me that uh, steve mcqueen i was i i don't know if steve would have been signed because then they would have been a whole issue about mm. money uh, but he said you know it was pretty much a go with mcqueen mm. to do the motorcycle right. uh and uh, that they realized and this is a point i was making about uh iraq um that uh, by 1975 there were no 45 year old vietnam veterans the way Steve mm -hmm. was at that time. 
Um, so, um, but you know, and, and it, it, you know, these days with the ubiquity of cameras and cell phones, you know, when I think back, having met Richard Brooks, having talked at length with with Sidney Pollock, um, or you know, some of these other folks. Um, Fortunately, I have photos of me with Sly and with me with Richard Crenna. Uh, but gee, I would just love to, and my admiration for them, love to have, you know, some physical, mm-hmm. you know, some visual momentum. Anyway, um, I was 28 years old when I sold First Blood. And the novel came out when I was 29, which is young. Um, and I... Um, mind you, I had culturally, you know, Canadian culture tends to say, don't get too full of yourself. So I, uh, I had that kind of built in, you know, suppression. <laughs> um, but then, you know, uh, 10 years passed and I published five novels, uh, all told, uh, yeah, up to blood oath, um, uh, one was a Western, one was horror, and one was a, a, a outdoor adventure, uh, the reverse of First Blood, which is like Sly saying he's going to make a Sam Peckinpah uh-huh. version of First Blood. And then the movie came out uh, for the same year as uh, Blood Oath. And, uh, oh, wow, you know, what an experience. Um and then three years later, the second movie came out, and that was the summer of Rambo. It is difficult, people who didn't live through it, to know about the phenomenon that Rambo First Blood oh, Part Two. I have an example. Oh, look at uh-huh. that! Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lunchbox. That's cool. Yeah, uh, uh, and it's in good Not shape. Bad. Not too bad. Yeah, there's, I wish I had some of the other other things still. There, there are boxes in my mom's attic. I am sure the figures and all the rest of it. But uh, yeah, I have I have some. I have, um, gosh, what do I have? A Rambo helicopter and some other things. You know, they're releasing new um, merchandise. There's a, a, stand, a two and a half inch, whatever of Sly at the end of. Or at the beginning of First Blood in the fatigue jacket, that's come. That's I guess it's available. Um, you know who who would have imagined? Um, Amazing. And um, you know a certain kind of person, and I've seen it happen, could have been intolerable with that degree of success. Um, and I, I, I know this is going to sound self-serving, but you asked me, I think if the movie had come out when I was 29, I would have been a jerk that I would not have been prepared professionally, emotionally, in terms of life experience in order to, uh, be able to adjust to it. Uh, and when the movie came out in 82, you know, I'm now 39, no, yeah, 39, some experience in life. Um, and, um, I'm more interested in how it's happening. Mm. Uh, and then when the, you know, the big thing happens in 85, oh God, it was big. Um, uh, uh just overwhelming. I mean, I was on, um, national television 
television. It, it, film crews came to where I lived, and, fo- and, and I was in People magazine, uh, and um, Entertainment Tonight did a feature. Uh, now, you know, a certain kind of, you know, <laughs> but I, I have a certain degree of irony about all this because I know it can go the opposite direction. Uh, and, and it's more a phenomenon to be studied, you know, and to be looked at with interest. So um, the delay, I think, was to the good. And then, as I said, the first time I met Sly, uh, it was on a, he was making a, one of the Rocky films and uh, Rambo 2 had come out. And I said, you know, and, and and he said, isn't, isn't this wild? You know, uh, I mean, and it's hard to amaze. Isn't this is amazing? And I said, yeah, I, I said, you know, sometimes I have trouble when I see the, uh, the character referred to so often. I, it takes me a moment, as I said to you earlier, that I say, oh, wait a minute. That's, I did that. And he said, yeah, that happens to me, too. So um, it's a it's a, uh, you know, I think just approaching life with curiosity and saying, oh, that's funny. Look at how that happened, uh, you know, can be a good thing. Uh, and uh, the age, the fact that time mm-hmm. moved on. And then in 84, um, uh, Brotherhood of the Rose came out. And then, uh, as, as I think you know, in 89, there was a miniseries oh, yeah. with Robert Mitchum. I didn't get to meet him because it was a writer's strike at the time. And I did four drafts uncredited of the miniseries script. Uh, Sterling Silifant did one and Guy Waldron, who got the credit, did the third. But that's the way the yeah. business goes in terms of, right. you know, one writer and then another. Um, but that's the only mini. I, I, I do love to say I just love to say this. Brotherhood of the Rose remains the only miniseries ever to be broadcast after oh, a yes. Super Bowl. And so forgive me, but I do take I do take some enjoyment in knowing that. And every time there's a, a, a Super Bowl, I keep saying, please don't have another. <laughs> exactly. So I still can have, say that I can have that. So I can still say that. Um, and I, you know, more than maybe everything, I, I, I find some joy in, in that historical uh, fact. And that um, I don't know why this is uh, when uh, NBC decided to promote brotherhood of the rose miniseries at a junket they have all these uh journalists that show up at uh hotel in las in los angeles and and they have day uh, all day you know uh, meet and greets and uh by heavens uh nbc invited me and david morse mm-hmm. uh to spend the day together answering questions and david wonderful man he, he plays yeah. chris in the miniseries a uh, wonderful man. He's still working, yeah. you know. He's and very interesting. Um, um, the Hurt Locker. That's the one about defusing bombs. Okay. Is yep. that correct? Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, David's in that. Still working. He's 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 one of the one of the guys that are giving the orders. So I had a wonderful time with that. And you know what a what a um, a uh, uh, compliment that they would feel I could, you know, help promote uh, the miniseries at the junket. And then when Rambo 3 was released, TriStar, which released the film, Caracol made it, but TriStar distributed it. Um, TriStar asked Sly, Richard, and me 
to be the voices at the junket. So once again, I was there all day and, 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 you know, and then I was asked to do the, the audio commentary. And I think they, the reason they did this is because as a professor, I was adding some gravitas. Mm. Got it. Whole experience. Oh, well, and you wrote, um, and you created you know, the character. So, <laughs> well, but but as 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 we said earlier, with your experience with the terminal list, this is not normal. Uh, they they normally want to pretend the novelist doesn't exist. And the Oscars, the recent Oscars, by now, um, as people listen to this, the Oscars will have been uh, a while back. Um, but only Jane Campion mentioned the author of the source material for the novel. Frank Herbert was not mentioned mm. for any of the awards of Dune. Interesting. Uh, Interesting observation. And it's very rare for somebody to get up on an Oscar stage and say, and by the way, and even the screenwriters, and by the way, thanks to for creating the novel upon which this was based, because they want to pretend the author doesn't exist. Interesting. Because they're in a in a narcissistic industry, yeah. in which it ha, you know it's them. Very interesting. Uh, so um, you know, anyway, uh, you know, it, it it was kind of a nice ride to be able to do those. Yeah, things. no, I, and then to be asked to do the audio commentary for the for and the those film. are great. I love I love I listened to your audio commentary on First Blood when I was in Mali, Africa, uh, in the military. Oh, really? Yeah, I remember oh, exactly what it was uh, when I listened to to that one and loved uh, loved every which, bit of it. It's the professor in me. I, you know, I just, and the way they do that is they put you in a sound booth and they show the film outside the sound booth, but you can hear sort of what's going on. And then they want you to comment. And I, I was told later, again, I'm, I'm a professor, so I'm used to speaking without notes for a long time. And some might say that I've been speaking without <laughs> notes a long time right now. But, uh, but I was able to just watch the film and say, you know, this and this and this. And they didn't have to stop. They didn't. We did it in, in one, one take. But it was, it was just sort of the same as yeah, lecture. No, it's fascinating. Maybe it's... Um... I think my experience with the terminal list might be a little different one because of the personal relationship with Chris and then the one that's developed with Antoine yes. Fuqua there and the, and the showrunner and then Amazon maybe being tied to books. So <laughs> obviously how did it start? Well, so. that's, a, that's another matter and they're much more integrated. Amazon has much more integrated view of, um, uh, synchronicity, I guess, is the term, um, of the way books and, you know, and movies and TV, be uh, all you know interact and uh, I mean they're very clever and creative about the way they can uh, make one reflect on the yeah, other. No, I feel extremely extremely fortunate. And now um, I've had a few different calls here with other Hollywood directors and producers about separate projects, um, and uh, it, it's fascinating to to have these different doors open. Um, and yeah. oh, I have no doubt. And and. Uh, um, I've, I've told you privately how excited I am about uh, what's happening with you and the very, very unusual, uh, 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 amazingly quick upward trajectory that you've had. And uh, you will, you will eventually, you will get a lot more and they're waiting to see how the terminal is. <laughs> okay. I'm hopeful. So when, we, when this airs, we'll be about a month and a half away from July 1st when it drops. But uh, the um, test audiences, uh, I think that's why they've 
doubled their efforts as far as uh, coordination with the publisher. Simon & Schuster says they've never yes. seen this sort of coordination on any of the, their novels that have been made well, in films. Well, here, here's an example. Here, example on the other thing. This is the 50th anniversary of First Blood. I have sent repeated messages to people at Grand Central, which has the paperback mm-hmm. that you showed, and the paperback came out three years ago. Um, one of you know, the latest of one of many, I can't get anybody to answer my emails. And I was saying, you know, at the 50th anniversary, um, you know, maybe we should coordinate, or at least you could release a press release or, you know, something dead radio silence. Uh, And um, well, that's because no editor was assigned to me uh, when I moved over to Mulholland. Uh, even though they're all in the Hachette group. And I asked somebody in Mulholland to, and that went forward. So I got the name and I went forward. Dead radio silence. So, um, you know, I, uh, again, uh, you're, you're getting the well, treatment. <laughs> it's, uh, I, once again, I feel extremely fortunate and it seems like it, it's an obvious opportunity, um, for them to sell some more first blood books. Of course, <laughs> it's, of uh, course. It's pretty cut. I mean, it's uh, pretty clear. You know, this is what, you know, what are we thinking here? And I just, uh, I no, I, I, I can't explain it. But one day I'll, you know, cross paths with somebody and say, you know, you guys. Yeah. You're not. You're not running the shop oh, right. My goodness. I know. It's such an opportunity. Uh, I mean, so influential uh, culturally, not just as a, as a, as a novel moving the genre forward, but obviously there's huge cultural significance there. Um, and speaking of that, when you were writing it, and I've heard people say, hey, don't have uh, an actor in mind playing your character. Um, and I didn't, yes. I had a character uh, actor in mind. I wanted to play my character, which in my mind is very different than someone, someone being that character. Um, right. There's a differentiation there that's important. And I thought of Chris Pratt playing the character, um, but yes. not being the character. So that, that's very different. But being a, a fan of, of films and going to all those Westerns growing up, sneaking into the theaters, uh, and then now writing oh. the, this first novel, did you picture an actor at the time of writing uh, playing Rambo? There was sort of. Um, and again, you know, as I, as, as I said, I thought Audie Murphy, but I was thinking of the type mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a man with Audie's background and anybody who doesn't know about Audie Murphy really, you know, do the research and the citation oh. for his medal of honor is, is mm-hmm. chilling. Uh, it, it's just so extraordinary. And it's only one of many actions that he was part of. Um, but I wasn't looking for anybody, you know, who resembled him. I just wanted that right. character, that person. And then I, I dress it up. Uh, with the beard and the long hair and, you know, who looked like basically mm-hmm. a vagrant. Um, but um, there was an actor at the time who resembled what I had in mind, and that was Chris Christopherson. Um, now, sometimes Chris didn't have the beard, but sometimes mm-hmm. he did. Um, and, um, and, you know, he had pretty good, pretty good career in movies. And I thought he would have been excellent. But, of course, by the time, by then, he was... Right. Older. Did you know that Chris was um, a Rhodes Scholar? Oh, I didn't know that, but I knew he was a veteran. That, and and it, he was a helicopter pilot in uh, in uh, in uh, I can't remember what branch. I think he was served. Air Force, but I'm not positive. And, I'd have to go back and check. I uh, can't. I'd have to check too. But you know, so here we have a master songwriter 
Rhodes Scholar, you know. Amazing. Uh, military. Uh, he taught at West Point. Oh, is that right? No kidding. Uh, I mean, extraordinary. And the story is, I don't know if it's apocryphal, that uh, he goes to Nashville and he's trying to get attention. So he hires a helicopter and he lands, <laughs> I guess, uh, I guess Johnny Cash had a big estate. So he landed the helicopter in the back of Johnny no Cash's kidding. estate. And this yeah, is yeah. the story, but it's right. repeated enough. That <laughs> I, I like to think it's true. Johnny comes rushing out. I like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> you know, and, and like, listen, would you listen to one of my songs? You know, and, and I guess Johnny thought uh, it, this is pretty hutzpah stuff. So, you know, come on yeah. inside as long as you're here. <laughs> um, and, and of course, you know, did record some of, you know, Johnny got, or, or Chris got a lot of, he's a remarkable songwriter, but you know, a pretty yeah. good actor too. So um, anyhow, yeah, I, I sort of thought, but you know, by the time they were casting, right. it wasn't going to happen. And, and it, it's important to realize too, that Sly had, had, had made some important mm-hmm. films, enormous Jewish, Jewish and film, especially called mm-hmm. fist about a labor organizations. Um, but the biggest hit he'd ever had had always been the Rockies so that he wasn't truly bankable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, as they say in the business and, uh, he, um, he was selected to be Rambo, um, uh, because he had a good overseas, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they were Carol Cole believed in worldwide distribution and ran it themselves because they were distributors in the overseas before they became so they were everything they did was was in terms of overseas as well as domestic and they sold in each individual country interesting uh instead of having somebody else do it and then take them paying a fee for it and andy told me that one of the reasons that uh, sly doesn't talk much in the movies he doesn't talk much in the novel either is that um it was uh, it avoided dubbing problems. <laughs> so great. They didn't have to uh-huh. translate, uh, and they didn't have the a- unintentional, hilarious accidents of somebody right. translating something that that wasn't correct. And you know, so that you know, he was he was perfect for the international market. And we have to remember the movie was much longer, uh, and had all kinds. It had flashbacks to Vietnam. It had other kinds of things, and the and it's a little bit like. The rumor about High Noon. Uh, high Noon is, it, it's apparently not true, but this is the story that High Noon, which runs as long, you know, from like 10 30 till, mm-hmm. till noon, like 90 minutes in real time, that it did not originally. Mm-hmm. And that uh, what happened was that every time Gary Cooper visited somebody, uh, there was a flashback to their relationship. And then when they said, No, I won't help you. Uh, that this was the, you know, the continuing like hopelessness that uh-huh. Gary Cooper was responding to. And the story is that all that was taken out and, and the little clock was substituted. Whether or not it's true and you get some editors who worked on it say that did mm-hmm. not happen. That's a myth. But it's about tightness mm-hmm. in story. Nonetheless, mm-hmm. it's a good story. I know for a fact there were there were other elements in First Blood and people who watched the movie on television, I believe it was NBC, uh, saw things that were never shown in the theater. And the reason for it was because they were, there isn't much violence in the movie, uh, but they were even cutting out that and putting in travel stuff from Vietnam or him, oh, wow. uh, you know, in bars in Vietnam or whatever. So there, but Carol Code didn't, to my knowledge, 
save its elements. It went out of business in 95. To, to my knowledge, all of this was oh. lost. Uh, all of the extra stuff, it, and except that there's a chance that it may exist for people who have VHS recordings right. of the of of of, uh, and I have I do have a VHS recording of it, um, but uh, I haven't watched it in so long I can't remember. But um, the same thing happened. They thought they had a disaster, uh, and Sly at one point people quote him and saying i don't think the movie's going to do very well he's not talking about the finished uh, product he's talking about an interview he gave before the editing occurred and uh chunks were taken mm. out until it was reduced to 96 minutes and they, you know it's sort of like in that case the story is true mm. that it was tightened and tightened and tightened and look what the result you know it's a lesson for all of us right yeah. about you know, sometimes you go too far, but some, but editing can make a magical oh, difference. The editing process has been quite interesting over these last few months. It's been uh, been fascinating oh, yes. to be a, a part of that. Um, I think I have a VHS or Betamax tape in my mom's attic, uh, Brotherhood of the Rose. It sounds like it's time to get I know, to your there's mom's a lot in attic there. <laughs> and find out what's up there's there. There's a lot in there. At least she's saved. At least she's yes. saved because the stories are full of, you know, like, comic books worth ten thousand dollars now that they just you know that were pitched um it's uh but anyway i if i were you i'd get yourself a you know i need to get in there uh, someplace (laughs) get in there and call it all to do that uh yeah who knows what what i'll find in there um do you remember when you were you watched it for the first time did you uh did you see it by yourself with your family or did you watch it with a, a crowd yes i think you you may know this story but it's a good one um, the, uh, about perception. Um, Orion, in this case, was the distributor for First Blood as opposed to TriStar. Now, I mention this because until recently, a movie studio was not allowed to release its own films for antitrust reasons. It used to be that movie studios owned theaters. And so they just made there was no question about getting them into theaters and they owned the theaters and the money it all came you know it was all one big profit uh but the problem was that independent feature makers unaffiliated with studios couldn't get their movies Mm. shown so the justice department said that this is in 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 opposition to free trade it's a it's Mm. monopolistic and in 1948 i love to talk about this the uh, Paramount Consent Decree of 1948, in which studios uh, agreed to dissolve their relationship with movie theaters so that they could not distribute the film they made. Uh, So to allow for competition so that independents could do this. Well, recently, um, that decree in 2020 was dissolved. Mm which allowed um, i you know if we are conspiracy minded <laughs> it allows amazon netflix apple F- apple's movie coda won mm-hmm. the oscar it's the first time a streaming service production company won an oscar and and uh, amazon uh, or netflix uh, uh, owns a flagship theater on times mm-hmm. square one of them owns Roman's Chinese wow. theater, uh, and they, it's where they show their movies, uh, and uh, only for a limited time. I mean, they can keep them shuttered all the other wow. time. They can yeah. afford it, and then they show for the minimum time necessary to be eligible for Oscars, and then they, they yank it out. Wow. Um, 
So I don't know how I got on the consent decree. I love to talk about it. Um, uh, to ask me what the, the question was. And then Did you see first really, blood with? Oh, sure. All right. So Orion, Orion distributed it. So in one of those rare things where the studio actually cares what the novelist <laughs> thinks, uh, I was contacted uh, to, they were going to give a special showing at a local theater like two days before the movie mm -hmm. debuted and the movie would be there anyhow, because they, it had to arrive to be shown that Friday night. So Wednesday afternoon. So I said, this is terrific. Um, and I'm going to have, I'm invent my, I invite my friends um, and I'm going to pay for the concession stand and they can buy the hot, you know, whatever they want. We'll watch the movie. And Orion said, no way. We want every blessed dollar from every ticket sale, and the only people—I'm serious—and the only way you, you that this is going to happen, and uh, you married, yes, you have children, yes. How many I have two? All right, you, your wife, and your two children can go to wow. see this movie. I'm serious. So on a Wednesday afternoon, about two o'clock. And I'd gotten to know the, the manager of the theater by then, and he had it opened up. And of course, there was no popcorn or anything. It hadn't opened that. So we sat, and like, you know, children being children, didn't want to sit with us. So they went somewhere else in the <laughs> humongous theater, uh -huh. you know, old style theater, humongous theater. So we're watching. And, um, you know, the curtains open as they used to, and the movie starts and Jerry Goldsmith's wonderful trumpet mm. and echoing Marshall theme. And, oh my God. And here comes Sly all 40 feet of him walking down the, you know, the path in the, mm -hmm. to the, to the lake where the black woman is hanging laundry. And so I had a, a moment, a, a kind of 96 minutes of unreality. And of course, I'm saying, well, that's in the movie that isn't in the movie. It's a different opening than mine. Uh, there's no, in the novel, there's no black woman hanging laundry. And uh, so, you know, it's all done. And my wife and I and the two kids, we stagger out to the sun, bright October afternoon. And I didn't know what the heck to make mm. of it. Uh, so I went home and a friend who is a film guy phoned. Uh, he taught film at the University of Iowa. He said, what do you think? I said, I have no idea. He said, well, let's put it another way. You know if it was bad. I said, oh, it's not bad. Yeah, I'd know if it was bad. It's not bad. I just don't know because of the difference. I don't know how good it might be. So I spoke to the theater manager and I said, can you fix it so I hide in your office? And when the movie starts, tell me and leave a seat way back here that's, you know, it's reserved or broken mm -hmm. or what have you. It looks like that. And then I'll sneak in and sit down. And so I did. And different experience. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's about the com communality, if that's the word, if that's a word, communal nature of film uh, watching, where uh you know move watching movies at home is not mm -hmm. the same as being in a theater although people abuse that and they're looking at their phones mm -hmm. and you know we have a let's face it a devolving yeah. society uh, but um i'm watching and you know they were they were with it 
and they felt sorry for you know the 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 black woman and her dead child in Agent Orange mm-hmm. and and uh, you know all these buttons that were being pushed and then him and the truck yeah. you know oh yeah you know I, I mean oh, oh yeah. my God and then the cop and then the fight in the jail okay and then because I said earlier I, I I thought they almost lost the movie was almost lost well what's yeah. wrong with the way he looks but then the fight occurs and, and oh my, they were going like this and they were yes. jerking and they were, you know, it was like they were fighting in their seat. And, and, and then the whole thing went on like that. And I thought this is going to be a huge movie. And, and, but you know, it took me to get over seeing it the second time to get over the differences and then also to appreciate, you know, the visceral nature that a common viewing yeah. experience can create. Uh, and then I got the hell out of there, but, you know, <laughs> Because I, I, you know, I didn't want to, it was good, would have been awkward because uh, a lot of them uh, were my students and things. And, and uh, um, later for Rambo two and three, uh, then Carol Co arranged for me to go out there to, to, to see, or, you know, to be a uh, TriStar did for me to see it in the special screening with the, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Roger Ebert. And, and I was, and I walked out of the theater wow. together and things like that. He was a very nice guy, um, you know, very unassuming, uh, which isn't always necessarily what a nice guy has to be, but, uh, but he, he was pleasant. This short conversation yeah. I had. Oh, it, that's so amazing. So how did your life, I mean, you, you remained a professor for a number of years, which is, mm-hmm. I think was surprising. I think to people then, as it is today, people listening to this will say, well, this guy wrote first blood. It's this movie. It's any, can and you're still writing these books? You know, one's coming out every year and a half or so at the time, two years at the yeah. time. Um, and you remain a professor. Um, how did your life change after first blood? Not after first, not after 1985, but after, after first blood, uh, cause you're still a professor. Your students obviously have seen the film or aware of the, the novel yeah. probably read and watched. And, uh, and now you're there in class with you. Um, but you remained so humble over all these years after all you have, have accomplished. Well, um, how did your life change? after the after the film came out well it, it actually the novel helped me mm. academically um now there are some universities who if the professor uh in this case i was an american lit professor i taught the american novel um who would have said uh, we don't care about that we want you to publish academic articles mm. and books. And I did publish an academic, uh, my dissertation is on a work of a now not so uh, well known, but at the time, very well known author named John Barth, who wrote novels about mm. novels, uh, what's called meta, like a little bit like Quentin what Tarantino. Uh, Quentin Tarantino <laughs> does. Yeah. And you know, I my do. fondness for once I upon do. a time in Hollywood, um, that, that extra layer. And, um, the they they would have uh, and and anyhow the John Barth uh, uh, dissertation rewritten was published by Penn State and is now I rewrote it yet again to make it get more mm. of the PhD out of it uh, so it's like a story about how to create right. stories uh, it, and it's available as an ebook John Barth an introduction uh, but other than that I wrote uh, First Blood I wrote. Te- Testament. I lost, wrote Last Reveille, which is a historical mm-hmm. Western set in 1916 after Pancho Villa raided uh, a New Mexico border town where there was a cavalry station named uh, 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 Columbus, New Mexico. Very historically important event. And um, 
It's hard for me to believe at that time, the University of Iowa Literature Department, which is different from the Writer's Workshop, I never taught in the Writer's Workshop. I have academic background. And um, at that time, the chair, his name was John Gerber, had a theory about personalities make a department. And not the specialties. He said, if I like somebody, if they change their specialty while they're working for the department, that's okay. And many of them did. Um, and uh, changed, you know, from periods or what have you. Uh, and uh, literary eras. And uh, so I told him in 71, uh, I had a, uh, he would take uh, first year, uh, I, I started teaching in 70. Um, 12,500, I think was my, wow. what I earned and as an assistant professor. And, uh, he said, well, how are you fitting in? I said, oh, I really like it, but I should tell you, I'm working on a novel. I'm not working on a scholarly work. And now in academia, you have seven years. Uh, it's not so much anymore, but in traditional academia, the, the, it's instructor, which I didn't have to worry about. I've been an instructor at Penn State, assistant professor, associate professor, and full mm -hmm. professor. After that, you know, you can get special uh, titles, but the full professor is mm -hmm. the zenith. If you're an assistant professor, and depending on the terms of your associate professorship, they can just say, we don't need mm -hmm. you anymore. And this is your final year. If you have the full professorship and what is called tenure, unless you assault somebody on the stage at the Oscars, <laughs> you cannot mm. be let go. That is a sinecure for life. So I started as, as an assistant and I published Testament, which is a pretty mm. rough book. I mean, it's, a, it's my strongest, most, most, you know, oh my God, did he really write that book? Uh, and in 77, uh, as I said, last Reveille, but in 75, I was made an associate mm -hmm. professor five years okay. into, in 1977, seven years into, I was, in fact, it may have been six years I was made a full mm. professor, and I had not published my John Barth mm. book. They, I got that on the strength of my performance in the classroom, in addition to, you know, I guess you could say a presence in popular culture. That may be unique. That may never have happened before or since. Probably not since, because academia changed and you know, people, <clears throat> um, it's it's a very very, um, how to put it, a competitive, petty in many yeah. cases environment. It, it's not necessarily an open-minded environment. But I loved it. I loved being with the students and with the right kind of faculty members. It can be a joy. And that was, as I said, I, I I'm still in stunned awe of that now. The end of that story is that 10 years later, it was actually in 86, it was nine years later, um, because of my personality, uh, I had been a professor for 16 years. 
uh, and not full professor all that time. Uh, and one day I walked in and I looked at, you know, I, I, I had, I'd been saying the same mm. thing in classes for years. And it's not like you can change the right. topic, you know. I mean, there, if you're teaching Theodore Dreiser, as you know, there are certain things you must teach. So I, um, I came home that night. It was just like when I said to Donna, you know, you want to go to the United States, quit your job, and I'll study with Philip Young. I said, you know, I think I'm going to resign. Okay. <laughs> so great. Um, and so I went into my, my chair and I said, you know, I think this is going to be my last year. And, um, so that was that. And so I am one of the very few people who had a full professorship with tenure, uh, in a big 10 mm -hmm. university, mind you, you know, and who one day said, i done that and i said that with great respect i love teaching but there was a moment when i said i i, I need I'm, I'm getting to be the same and so i i resigned my my professorship i you know i i have great i get talked asked often to teach about writing which i never did at penn state or at iowa um but uh you know it's like being in the classroom again so uh, you know it's a it's a, there's a kind of interesting history. Yeah, here. it's interesting that it, uh, it wasn't the success of all the novels and then the films and uh, that caused you to, to, uh, to leave. No, it was, it, it, it's something totally different. It was being in That's the amazing. rut. If, if, if somebody would look at Route 66, mm -hmm. the series, Sterling Silifon, who was a son of a traveling salesman and who stayed four to five weeks ahead of the series, which filmed on location across the United States. 60 to 64 and Sterling lived mm. the life. He drove ahead of the crew, came into a town, spoke to the CBS affiliate, asked for a tour of the town, and then went to a hotel room and wrote, if this is unimaginable, a hour long script wow. in three days, and then got in the car and drove wow. on. And, and, and that ethic about moving on, mm. busting out, finding yourself, getting, you don't know where your destination is, but by God, right. you're going to find it. That's my life. Uh, and uh, so um, that's what happened in 1986 for me that I, you know, that to be true to Route 66, it's the reason we came to the United States. You know, it's the reason we wound up at Iowa. It's the reason why in 1992, we loved Iowa City. Um, we loved our friends, but we'd lost a child there. He died from when he was 15. And when he would have graduated from high school, we decided it was time, as my wife said, to begin act three. And we told everybody and within six weeks we were gone. And we moved to Santa Fe based upon being here for four days in April of 1992. Um, and um, so uh, I don't know. It, it's uh, you know at the end of this conversation, it's hard to you know we've covered so many topics to to delve into you know what the significance of that is, except that you know people do get set in their ways, and I'm hoping not to have done that. You know, to although I've been living in the same house now for 30 years, and um, you know my with COVID. 
um, you know, we, I don't need to go anywhere. I work at home. Uh, you know, we went to a grocery store occasionally and wore a mask. Um, and uh, my wife was, you know, we're fortunate to have some space where we live. Um, and I, you know, the other day I said, you know, she said, we don't, we don't travel anymore. And I said, yeah. And, you know, maybe one day, yes. But I said, if you think about it, this is our world. And what we're doing is imploding our world. We're, 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 we're centering it. We're getting closer to a core, which as opposed to, you know, the rustic 66 metaphor, but it's still finding yeah. oneself. And you've done that same thing, uh, exploring different genres and pushing each one of those forward. Um, but interesting, as a professor, someone else was a professor uh, in the late 70s who taught First Blood. Many universities across the, the country did. Uh, and Stephen King yes. taught uh, yes. did a, a discussion, taught First Blood uh, in Maine back, it, I think, in 1978 or somewhere around a, that time frame. Around there. Steve, who is a friend, although I haven't seen him in years, his career just went so successful last time i saw him was i think 1990 um and we exchanged emails if uh, letters emails not uh, that was before uh, i haven't seen him in years uh, but his truly his when when he when you get to that level um it becomes just important to you know keep your focus uh, but he and i were very close for a long time talked often on the phone i visited him in both both homes in uh, Maine, he visited us in in Iowa City, um, and uh, when he taught creative writing, fiction writing at the University of Maine for, a, I guess a term, I don't know. Um, the two books he taught were James M. Cain's Double Indemnity. And first blood, and I thought, you know, that's that's really fun thing to be able yeah. to say. And I was, you know, that was only six years after the book had been yeah. released. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I've been. It's been fortunate. Yeah. Oh, incredible. And the, the the character in the novel is angry. Uh, the movie made him more more of a victim. Yes. More, the audience could be more sympathetic yes. to what he's going through. Um, and uh, obviously, you're telling a story visually, um, which is different than reading it, obviously. Um, but uh, some other things happened between 1972 and 1982, culturally, politically, uh, that that kind of morphed how that story could be digested by by audiences. But I think yes. that's one of the main things that people will who find First Blood, the novel after having seen the movie or multiple films, um, I think that's something that will really, really stand out. The protagonist antagonist side. D different mm -hmm. train tracks. Yep. Yeah. You know, First Blood is frankly, I mean, war is heck, war is hell. It's far more intense experience than the, than the film. Um, and it, uh, it might be worth pointing out that Ronald Reagan, when he was president, was a big fan. And he frequently referred to Rambo in his press conferences. And, and, and I now already mentioned U.S. Rambo mm -hmm. Jets Bomb Libya, yeah. which was a London newspaper headline. But he famously said in an in a interview, I saw a Rambo movie last night. Now I know what to do the next time there's a terrorist hostage yeah. crisis. 
And, you know, so you can, you know, look at that. He said he was having fun, you know, and maybe he was. <laughs> I can't imagine he was serious, uh, you know, but it is, you know, it's fun to have a president, you know, John F. Kennedy mentioning uh, Ian Fleming, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. you know, and, and not that Ronald Reagan didn't mention my novel, but indirectly, you know, so it's cool to have a president refer. Yep, no, that's incredible. Uh, and then also the knife. So there is not, I think it's a surprise to people that there is not a knife in the books. Uh, Well, the novelization there is, but, um, uh, but there's the Jimmy Lyle knife is brought in as a prop and there's a connection. I like how you talk about how Sylvester Stallone and Steve McQueen were both uh, experts at using that prop, even if it was just a, just this, just a, just a quick little something like that for Steve McQueen. Um, But well, it isn't. Yeah, it isn't. The, uh, there is no knife in the in the novel, and it, it, knives knives weren't part mm. of the culture in the same way. Uh, when I was writing at sixty-eight, sixty-nine, seventy, uh, Sly is was a knife collector, uh, and he was familiar with Jimmy Lyle, and uh, and Sly, as you as you were suggesting, like two actors he worked with in his long career who knew what to do in front of a camera. We're not necessarily talking about Olivier quality acting. We're talking about you're in front of a camera. How do you hold the audience's attention that they're both masters with the use of their eyes and the Mm -hmm. use of props and give McQueen a prop and he would destroy anybody else the scene and it's fun to watch mcqueen's movies just to Uh see him doing that often cruelly (laughs) um and and with sly he said i've got to do stuff i you know i'm out there what am i going to do i need a knife so he got jimmy to i believe it was a randall survival knife that was then modified um and uh has i have them i have um both jimmy and gil hibben who's a close friend jimmy's no longer with us so I never had the chance, except I talked to him on the phone. Uh, they they gifted me author's copy. Uh, so um, the uh, but uh, so I you know um, I get the script and I get the Cameron script and then they're talking about this knife and I phoned Andy and I said what's this knife? And he said oh it's a big deal with the knife. I said you know I need to I need to look at it. And so the next thing I know, I'm talking to Jimmy on the phone and he's explaining it. And he says, I'll send you one. And, you know, it's marked author's copy and with some literature about it. And uh, you and I have talked these things, you know, I mean, you were looking Mm -hmm. for one, you know, part of those one to 100 original edition, almost impossible to find. And the first 10, uh, whatever happened to them is some 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 mystery but he um uh i was so impressed that if you look at the as you know the novelizations for two and three there are drawings of the night awesome. <laughs> and, and and as you know there are paragraphs about each of them that almost feels like it came from a catalog but i wrote it myself you have do. You, you you know what yep. I'm talking about, and uh, and uh, years later, I was sort of making up for being too stupid to have the knife in the in the <laughs> novel. Years later, at a Blade 
show uh, every year there's a blade yeah. show where knife right. makers congregate and knife lovers and i you know if this were video i'd show you some of my knives that yeah. i've uh, we do have video this is video we have video going and I, i've seen pictures from the uh oh, are yeah. you serious and i have video f- oh well here I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna bring you i'm gonna Amazing. bring you two knives yes okay yes all right so the movie that made knife making in the last 20th century is called The Iron Mistress. I think it's 1953, Warner Brothers, Alan Ladd, Virginia Mayo. He's Jim Bowie. And no one knows what the original Bowie knife looked like. Um, but Warner Brothers did some research and they came up with what they thought it could be. And it's a beautiful, beautiful knife that isn't featured enough in what amounts to a romance uh, movie. Uh, But I know when I was a kid and I saw that movie and Alan Ladd brings the model and a real live blacksmith in in real life, his name was Black. uh, And he, a blacksmith named Black, (laughs) um, made, made whatever knife it was and so they're recreating that and the next thing you see the knife flies through the air and impales itself in a and so if i'd known that i would show you so here is this is gil hibbins version of the iron mistress i'll turn it's it's huge it's it's now what's interesting here is it has a brass back this is known as a brass back wow. blade. And you'll notice how the guard uh-huh. is shaped this way with its yeah. tongs going up. And that is in, in a, God forbid, you know, I, I took a knife uh, defense class with, uh, with someone and, you know, the theory, you know, get the, get, yeah, get yeah. out of there. They're scary. <laughs> right. And, and in this case, um, Come on, help me. Uh, the, the knife that's in the protector, CQC7. Yep, uh, uh, Emerson. Oh, come on. Emerson. Oh, God. I would have felt so bad if I couldn't remember. It's a senior moment. Ernest Emerson. Uh, great, great fellow. And I used his knives in the, the uh, protector and the naked edge. Um, and uh, he uh, said, come on, do a, you know, do a class with me. And, uh, you know, and, and what he says is, you know, yeah. go. You know, if I mean, you, this is not something you want to be involved with, but if you, this is how to do it if you have no other choice. And if, and, and this is worth for you know this, and some of your listeners and viewers know it, but not everybody knows this. It's the old joke about ha ha ha, he brought a mm-hmm. knife to a gunfight. Uh huh. Well, I know personally from my training that if somebody stands 50 feet away from you with a knife, and you have a holstered handgun in the heat of the moment, that guy more than likely can cross that 50 feet, knock you to the ground and do mm-hmm. his work before you can pull yeah. uh, uh, draw. Um, and I remember uh, at this uh, event, with uh, Ernest Emerson, the head firearms instructor for the LAPD came out and the whole idea about knives and guns. And they had a mannequin 50 feet away that people could pull rapidly on a pulley. And he had, he was, he had a 45 um, 
1911 uh, 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 and uh, holstered. And uh, he could not get yeah. it out and fire at what have been the equivalent of that thing coming at him in time. And this was as good as it yeah. got than the LAPD. Uh, so it's a big deal. And anyhow, um, Gil Hibben and L- Jimmy Lyle saw that movie, mm. The Iron Mistress. And now oh, I was telling you about the brass back blade. The idea is in the event of a, and this is a yeah. huge knife, um, that the, the blade came down, it would stick wow. in the brass. And if, if it did manage to slide down and get yeah. caught here. So the brass was not only decorative, but it was... And, and, uh, this wow. is, uh, the others are too hard for me wow. to get to. This is the machete yeah. from, Rambo um, four. <laughs> from Rambo four. And, you know, and I'll say I'm a little bitter about, uh, as you know, Rambo yeah. five, um, among other things, uh, um, the, in the, in the American cut of the film, um, the, the overseas hmm. cut is different. It has an extra 10 minutes as with Rambo as rancher rescuing people mm-hmm. on a flash foot. Um, that was left out and it began underground in those tunnels. And virtually the first thing we saw was, um, was this machete from Rambo four on hmm. a wall. It's got, uh, it's got tape around a black, hmm. you know, heart heavy duty tape and, and a mm-hmm. tong here, and it's uh, they, you know you could make it out of a spring right. from a car, which is what yeah. happens in the film, and um, and Gil does not get credit. Mm-hmm. You can look anywhere in that movie, and 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 uh, Sly uses it as a weapon in the climax. Does not get credit for that knife being in the, and it it annoyed mm-hmm. me because Gil is a friend, and I know it annoyed Gil too. Um, so anyway, um, these guys, uh, uh, Jimmy and Gil saw iron mistress and they became knife makers because of it. So then now we have the iron mistress tradition. Now we have the Rambo knives tradition. Um, and because I promoted these knives so much in the books and otherwise as I'm doing now, um, at that blade show, I received an industry achievement (laughs) award, you know, for promoting from promoting blade uh, blades and blade manufacture, and uh, there's a joke here because uh, in in the in the forward uh, to the novelizations, I give right. a few credits, and one of them is to yep. Jimmy. What does it say? It's created by Jimmy Lyle, the Arkansas knife smith, and then an address. Route one, Russellville, Arkansas, seven two eight zero one. Uh, <laughs> incredible. Yep. Mr. Lyle also made the now famous <laughs> knife that was used in the movie First Blood. The present knife is somewhat different, although equally dramatic. As with the first blood knife, 100 marked and serial numbered Rambo copies have been sold to collectors. <laughs> An unnumbered, slightly different version of both knives is available to the public. A six-inch Rambo throwing knife is also available. Uh, and then you talk about the bow, uh, which is incredible. The bow was created by a Hoyt Eastern archery and an address. Uh, Van Nuys, California yeah. at the time. Uh, and it too is available. And then you thank Joe, Joe Johnston for teaching me about its intricacy. Uh, Kathy Vel- Velardi supplied yeah. me with helpful information. Bob Rode answered my questions about yeah. the history of archery. And then you talk about the arrows developed by Pony Express Sports Shop yeah. in uh, Sepulveda, <laughs> California yeah. with the full address. Uh, and then thanks to Joe uh, Rope, uh, probably not saying that quite right, uh, for explaining their unique capabilities. Uh, amazing. Yeah. 
And since so I didn't know that this was video, let me go oh, get a yes. Rambo awesome. uh, arrow. Yes. <laughs> I've got yes. all this stuff. So here's, it's kind of hard it. to see, but here's the point. It, it goes wow. like this. It has a interior um, mm -hmm. spring. So, you know, that's so he can carry it, you know, in a pouch and then yep. get it ready, you know, and then it has removable you yep. can unscrew yeah. the heads and of course in the yeah. takes forever and then and on there they're pretty nasty yeah. looking you know look at that um and then of course in the movie he he puts yeah, the uh, explosives you know yeah, grenades yeah. or whatever it's the so hell it is he puts on there so and there's that so right there you read all that and there it is yep yeah if if we had a different i have it it's up here that Amazing. that's up here um but um so the joke is that Pauline Kael, a critic, a film critic long gone, but whom I greatly admire to this day, she had personality in, in her reviews for the New Yorker. So <laughs> they, Carol Cole, Andy and Mario wanted these novelizations to promote the film so that anybody who, who received a press kit received oh, the wow. novelizations. So she said in the novelization, this was for Rambo two. She says quoted uh, where I say, they're not only uh, this, I'm paraphrasing works of utility, but mm. works of art. And then she said, she can hardly wait for her set to arrive. Love it. Love it. <laughs> being of course nasty about it because <laughs> uh you know i mean uh, it sets itself up and that's a western you know that i mean the fight mm. in the helicopter in rambo 2 is stage fight coach, on top yeah. of the stagecoach uh you know so it's the whole thing but uh yeah uh so i had you know i did i didn't know uh jimmy well but i had uh, gill and i have had a long relationship and and uh sometimes i have uh, you know this yeah. beauty um and it's so it's just yeah. so beautiful it has a a copper or uh, a brass a cap and a brass yeah. thing here it's yeah, really hard to see amazing yeah i don't um so um you know i have um i was eventually able to buy a rubber version of the mm -hmm. iron mistress it was used in the close scenes so they wouldn't cut anybody yep. so in the and the iron mistress was used not only in the iron mistress it was used in davy crockett's uh mm -hmm. the in oh, the Davy crockett series at the alamo it was john wayne's the mm -hmm. alamo the it's used in there as well it's used in a sterling hayden movie about the alamo called the last huh. command and it's used in the first in the pilot episode of uh, Jim Bowie TV okay. series. And then after that, it disappeared. And a man named Jim, uh, uh, Joe Musso acquired all these because he used to work for Warner Brothers. And, and when they decided that these were worthless, ah, he oh, acquired them all. And recently he decided to sell a few. So I bought a rubber wow. iron mistress that was used for the close stuff when nobody Amazing. could get hurt. So that's that's in another room. I didn't know we were gonna. I sometimes uh, uh, Zoom is um, you know yeah, just yeah. audio. No, no, uh, it's uh, it's all it, it's video. But, so I'd I'd uh, but anyway, I've got some. I did bring some show and tell once. There I, we go. I and here's this one here. Uh, 
that's the yep. that's the third one a modified uh buoy for um for the yeah you know the, i should do this because so uh, i did once again your influence uh the tomahawks uh, it's something that was very deliberate yeah, uh, on yeah. my part to do something that was. It's very, very. It is. Effective. And it's something people haven't seen before. And unless they look it up, they don't know about that front spike on there. Uh, and so I get questions about it all the time. But uh, I should ask the publisher to put a, uh, a picture of it in there like this. Oh, that'd be a great uh, idea. You should. Yes, yes, absolutely. I don't know how, about costs. I don't have no idea whether it adds anything to the printing. But I think that's a great idea. Uh, and, you know, and again, it. You know, it helps people understand. And I, you know, I know with the novelizations, you know, that was, those, those illustrations oh, yeah. were a big deal. And then you, met, you mentioned the Gauntlet Press editions, which came out three, four or five years ago, and which are my preferred. First Blood, you can't get anymore. They only made 500 mm -hmm. of each one, uh, partly because of the licensing of the extras that were, uh, that were in it. Um, but for two and three, I have sections uh, uh, in the um, about mm -hmm. the knives, um, and and, uh, and and um, and in some cases photographs and things like that. Yeah, and uh, you know if anybody cares, there are very few of these left. You go go yep. to gauntletpress.com. Uh, They're not expensive. I mean, what forty five dollars or something. But the extras on them are extraordinary. Oh, yeah. Um, and there were there were very limited of the limited 52 of them that had more stuff like uh, I pulled out from my files the press kits and reprinted interesting things in the press kits and things like that. I love that. these editions. Um, and you, so, you signed I mean, them all here? They're, they're yeah. the best. They're, they're, those are my, well, they, yeah. they come signed. But I probably I may have personalized them. I can't. I couldn't have because you didn't have any books. That's right. Like that's right. So yeah, they came that way. They came signed with their with their numbered number of so and so. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I'm going to ask the publisher about doing that with uh, with the tomahawks because uh, I do get that question all the time. I'm sure they'd love to. <laughs> and it's it's featured quite prominently in the series coming out on July 1st to, as well. So they're already six months. <laughs> I can they're already imagine. six months behind uh, just with the novels on making these things. Is somebody is somebody going to make these in real life? Oh yeah, yes. they're already made in real life by uh, a knife maker who did all the knives and uh, tomahawks for Last of the Mohicans. Uh, Daniel Winkler is his name okay. in North Carolina. I hope I hope you I have. Did. Some I ordered a few yourself. more recently. Uh, <laughs> just, <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, this is um, this really, really, I mean, very effective. Uh, and and very interesting. Yeah, no, I think so. But I got that. I mean, that that all starts with uh, you and the films and the phenomena that was uh, all based on your on your character. Um, and uh, you've been so generous with your time, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate all of this. And I love talking to you every chance we get. We get to talk by email uh, with COVID. We don't get to see well, each other well, that uh, that often, obviously. <clears> but I hope <throat> that changes in the uh, in the coming year here. Um, but uh, the novelizations, fantastic. That's how I found you. Everybody that dismisses them as novelizations of a movie are making a mistake because they are, they are not novelizations. They're they are different. different. They are different. Yeah. Yeah. They're at half, a, 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 a people familiar with the films will find at least half mm -hmm. new material. Uh, and, and many times from, especially from the James Cameron script, but also from the movie that uh, Rambo three was not as good as it could have been based upon my experience with the mm -hmm. first script but budget considerations. And so what you get is what the film could have been. And uh, 
Um, but you know, it, 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 it the, it was already very right. expensive. I'm reading a little something about about that. Um, and then in the movie, in uh, there, there's a line that, that you talked about and one that stood out to me when I saw it between uh, sixth and seventh grade that that summer. And it's when uh, when Rambo, played by Sylvester Stallone, obviously, uh, asks Colonel Troutman and says, "Sir, do we get to win this yeah. time?" I mean, that was a yeah. that's a powerful line. That that it's a huge it's a huge thing, and it echoes, of course. What many uh, people in in military, American military, felt. I mean, this is this is a very complicated mm-hmm. thing. Um, you know, if you read um, McNamara, for example, wrote a book about how mm-hmm. Vietnam happened, and and he he felt that it should not have happened. Uh, that uh, there were political mistakes made, and and that the whole Gulf of Tonkin thing, which is possibly mm-hmm. suspect is never the attack never ever happened um you know who, who knows how these and of course you bring the trouble these days is people feel more than they think and they're bringing you know expectations and so if it doesn't meet that expectation it's got to be wrong well you know my question is that's interesting you know what mm-hmm. makes you think that or what have you or may feel that in, in this case and um but as, as uh, you talk to some Vietnam veterans, and they will say that the politicians hampered them. Well, it's so difficult to say over the years. I mean, we know the enemy was very resilient and that the enemy was using tactics that took a long time before the American military decided to match in kind uh, with guerrilla tactics. Um, so, uh, you know, it's a complicated, uh, it's just so complicated. And, and that line is one of the most famous lines mm-hmm. in movies, sir, do we get to win this time? Although it isn't often quoted because, you know, it's, it's, it's so heavily politicized. It's not the same as here's looking right. at you, kid, uh, from, Ca- from Casablanca. Um, and, uh, uh, but uh that that summer you know that whole and remember america was reinventing itself mm-hmm. the 70s were so dismal and it was so you know so what happened to us and all that aftermath of all that all of those ugly emotions the, the fatigue and so you know ronald reagan ran a you know bright new tomorrow and um so you know the rambo became a symbol of you know forward looking um and uh I don't know. It's uh, it, uh, uh, we could spend a long time talking, you know, in, in an American mm-hmm. studies class about 1985, oh, yeah. and you know the different. In in some ways, the same thing was happening. That, uh, but not as violent, of course, as in 1968. But you know, another yeah. Another and of topic. course, things explode. Movie comes out. Novelization comes out. Um, and then Rambo Three begins to film a couple of years later. Uh, when it comes out, it's the day the Soviets withdraw from Afghanistan. <laughs> of course, <laughs> talk about timing. Yeah, Talk about uh, I was there opening night. I have great memories yeah. of going to see it with my dad. I have great memories of going to see Rambo First Blood Part Two with my dad years earlier. Um, but uh, you get you do the press for Rambo Three, like you talked about, you and Stallone and Richard Crenna um, out there. Um, and uh, I actually have the watch 
This is one of the, this is the watch that uh, Stallone wears. Oh, that uh, very cool. Sport UDT timer um, from uh, yeah, so very I do cool. Have that. Um, I wish I'd yeah. some of these other things like the knives that were you know, maybe a few hundred dollars back then, you but know, that might as well have been a few million dollars to a twelve-year-old kid. Oh, I think I think they sold yeah, for a thousand dollars. Yeah, the, the, might as well have been one, a couple million. Zero to one hundred. <laughs> that would have been that yeah. was huge, huge money, um, and. Um, you know, uh, now, of course, and I sent you a, a Blade Magazine article about yep. collecting the knives and the different iterations of them. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's still quite a oh, quite yeah. a So one of them went up for auction recently from Sylvester Stallone's collection. He's okay. been putting things up for auction um, over yes. the last year. Um, and I saw it come out and uh, I knew that my friend who got, who got this, uh, uh, the original artwork. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I'd, I wanted to get it too. It was, it started at 30,000. Um, and, uh, but I think it went up quite huh. significantly from there. And I, I was sure that, he, and he said, cause I let him know about it. So he said, we'll share custody. Uh, my friend, Evan Hafer of Black Raffle Coffee yeah. said, we'll share. You can have it. It's like kids <laughs> in a divorce. He said, we'd share right? custody. <laughs> and then he barely missed it. Someone got, he was on there and someone just got in there at the last second and ended up Getting it, so I don't know how much it actually went for, but that was the uh, uh, Sylvester Stallone's personal. Well, if it went for less than 70,000, yeah, no, I think it went for, for over that. Uh, um, but what was it like to be on set? So you hadn't been uh, on set for the first two films, uh, I, I don't think. But then you're on set no, for no, Rainbow I wasn't three. And uh, what was that like, just to yes. take all that in and um, see all those people? Well, and it was involved. It was it was fine. I I um, I was um, Playboy uh, magazine. Uh, asked me to do a piece about the movie and uh and um andy uh decided that carol Cole would pay for my wife and i uh, they were he remarkable executives at a big studio to pay for us to go to mm -hmm. israel where it was being filmed in in Eilat, which is a resort on the a red sea i believe it's been a while and uh, we were welcomed uh, uh, completely. Um, Sly uh, was very gracious and came over as soon as he was shooting. And we were in the, and somebody mentioned we were here. And as soon as they were done, he came over and made a big fuss to Donna, especially, which was very, very nice. And our son had died not long before. So, you know, there was a certain um, issue there. And, uh, and I tell this story. Um, prior to that, I had, I had been this before matt died he but he was sick uh and i was uh at his offices he was not there uh i was there for another reason and uh i mentioned to his assistant susan personally uh i liked her a lot um and she i said you know maybe so i could phone talk to my son you know in the great scheme of things it doesn't mean anything but you know and a temporary, you know, talking to a movie star, it, it, yeah. it, it's a big deal. So she said, well, Sly gets asked a lot, but he never knows what to say. And I said, I certainly understand that. You know, it's, it's such an emotional thing. I said, just, you know, tell him, you know, he is after all my son and he, Matt will probably want to talk to him about the movies. Um, so um, she said, I'll ask him, but, you know, I doubt it. So as these things happen, and this is a question about that luck we were talking about earlier, um, he, 
Matt came home in that he, he, when he wasn't in the hospital or recovering from chemo at home, sometimes he could go to school. So he was in grade school. So he went to, um, I have a little flashback here trying to remember if, if it was grade school or high school. Um, anyhow, he came home with some friends and, um, uh, they had not been allowed to see the Rambo films at home, but I had, you know, it's hard to imagine now with all the access we have that in the mid 1980s, the only thing where you could watch it after the rerun on TV, which would not be the same is by a, a, a VHS tape, which you have to buy the, 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 the rental stores had not yet opened and they were expensive, but you know, um, I forget if by contract I'm supposed to get a tape, but they never <laughs> remember to do that. Um, and I, you know, I, is it worth the trouble to <laughs> complain? Uh, and, and, uh, so I had it and I said, do you want to, Oh God, they're going to watch the movie. So I put it in and, uh, he had a TV in his room and, uh, I was in the kitchen and the phone rang. And I picked it up and Susan says, if uh, is your son home, I said, yeah. And she said, well, Sly is here. If he's available, uh, uh, they'll talk. So uh, I went into the room and I, I, you know, it's funny how you have these snapshots. Of, it's the scene where Sly and most of that is him. Uh, he does. There's a lot of his own stunts is clinging to the side of a cliff while the helicopter comes. And I said, Matt, would you like to talk to Sylvester Stallone? Well, they thought this was the funniest thing they'd ever heard. You know, as if, you know, you know you're like in a movie, would you ever have liked to talk to him? I said, no, 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 he's on the phone. So Matt, you know, hurried out and the two kids came out to watch Matt talk to Sylvester. He says, oh, hey, how are you doing? He says, yeah. He said, so what happened with the new movie? What were the grosses like on, on the weekend? So they talked show business for, you know, he was 15. He was a wonderful child. And they talked uh, grosses for a while and then they hung up and, you know, um, okay. Oh. Small thing, uh, yeah. but a big thing. Right. And uh, so, um, you know, I, I always have good things to say yeah. about him. No, it's an incredible, incredible story. Uh, it's heart, heartbreaking and uh, yeah. yeah. Oh. Well, and, um, uh, and I, I'll just finish the story because then in, 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 in a lot, mm -hmm. I had a lot of access, but even more in mm -hmm. Yuma, the second part, but the, the climax was filmed in Yuma, Arizona. Um, and uh, there it was a smaller crew because they didn't, it, you know, it, was, mm -hmm. it wasn't international. So I had a lot of time, you know, I, I talked to him and I can't remember if I talked to Richard then or not, but I was I was there in the climax where Sly is with the Molotov cocktail on horseback. Yeah. He's a marvelous rider, you know, and there and it's like, you know, the cavalry charge against, you know, um, and uh, I can tell you his arm was wow. severely burned from the flames as he rode because of the, the wind. And then there's a scene near the end where he's shot. He falls off the horse. And they had to do that a number of different times. And, you know, there was a, a squib in his, uh, mm. in his trousers and, uh, then he'd have to, you know, go off 
and hide behind a crate and behind a truck to take his clothes off to take his and put on new trousers with the new squib to come back to fall off the horse and go through it all again. And I can tell you, I was close enough that the blood on his back is wow. the real thing. Wow. So, you know, he does, he, he, he does, he takes the pain. You know, he's like, uh, it's like, uh, 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 Charlize Theron mm. doing her own fight in at the end of atomic. I, Bond. You know, atomic I need Bond? to see it. It's been on my list for so long. Oh, it, it, you know, it's a, it's an ordinary, I shouldn't put it that way. The plot is mm. familiar, you know, in this case, a female, mm. uh, betrayed agent and all, you know, all the intrigue, but Charlize decided, uh, and my comparison is with Fred mm. Astaire. He, they always photograph Fred Astaire dancers full frame without Same cuts. You know, you know it's him, and and with Ginger or Rita Hayworth was his favorite dancer, with him, uh, and but you know it's him, and and he had absolute control mm. over this. So when they do the, the climax, it's a fifteen minute extended gunfight hand fight. Wow. That's her. There, it's full body, upstairs, around this way and that way. When they go into another room that's where the mm. cut is so they can reset up but she's probably doing extensive i think of it as a mm -hmm. as an athletic event you know because it's not dangerous i mean they get hurt but you know the walls and the stairs are all rubberized and all that but you'd never know it and you know so she might do three minutes at a time uncut and then and that goes on for 15 minutes and it's astonishing and in the extras for the Blu-ray 4K, uh, they have uh, how she trained for it and how they prepared for it and how yeah. then they turned it over to her, trusting her to do the stunts without maiming herself. So Atomic Blonde, one of the great physical well, climaxes. So anyway, so, you know, I, I somehow digress, but, you know, Sly is like, like Charlie's, you know, All in. he's, I mean, he broke his, broke his neck on, 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 on I, I remember reading about that. You can see it. You can see where it could possibly happened there. We get slammed against this this wall and that. Um, yeah. But uh, and then of course Rambo, which we call Rambo Four, uh, and uh, yeah. that returns to the original character more so than any of the other other films of the of the book. Yes. And especially and especially um, in the director's cut, which uh, I, uh, I didn't know we do this, but I can get it easily. I'm going to give you a, a quote yes. from the director's cut. I had occasion to refer to this enough that I watched the film and copied it. Peace is an accident. When the killing stops in one place, it starts in another. But that's okay because you're killing for your country, but it isn't your country who's asking. It's a few men up top who want it. Nobody wins and everybody in the middle dies and nobody tells the truth. And now that's in a Rambo film. And I didn't see, I mean, the, the climax to that film is far too long. Far, far too long. But, but I was told that for Oriental audiences, they like their action scenes longer. Uh, okay. Um, but it's too <laughs> long. So, so remove that. 
and 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 get what Sly did when he did the director's cut mm. and his version. It's still too long. The climax is still too long. Um, and what you see is dialogue that is shocking in a Rambo film. Um, in terms of, you know, uh, movie critics who just looked at it as your basic uh, shoot 'em up right. war movie didn't listen. I mean, that dialogue, mm -hmm. or I quoted a smaller one war, uh, uh, um, old men started, old, young old men, die, or, uh, old men started, young men die, or the, the equivalent. Um, and there's another shocking one where he seems to suggest, I don't know if I, this was in the th mm -hmm. theatrical, I don't recall, but it's in the, in the edited, in the extended, but this is shocking uh, because it seems to suggest that sometimes the adrenaline of the, of the combat can be mm -hmm. self-feeding and <clears throat> he, he's, he's forging the machete mm -hmm. that I showed, Gil Hibbins. He's finally, you know, he's the reluctant warrior. That's the whole point, uh, which is why it was a little difficult sometimes with his enthusiasm in 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 the second and third one. Um, and 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 he's forging the machete to go back to go into Burma, which is really Myanmar. And we see bits of Richard Crenna, and you know, there's a kind of a hallucinatory quality, and he and we hear him thinking. And the line is, you didn't kill for your country, you killed for yourself, and for that God will not forgive Powerful you. Line. And I mean, when I heard that, I was shocked that it would be in because anger, you know, some, you know, you're, 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 I've not been in combat, but I've, as you know, I've, I've talked a lot and I, you know, I defer, um, but uh, in conversations, I've been, you know, that the anger, the rage that would make someone uh, in, 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 you know, in a, in a, I, I, words fail me here, yeah. but I think you know what I'm talking about. That 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 uh, um, you know what was Audie Murphy feeling when he did what he did? You know, I mean, and one of the themes of my books about Rambo is that he discovered something in him that he wished he had mm -hmm. not discovered. Uh, and so you know, and 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 you you talk about these yeah. same themes yeah, in your book. I'm a very personal personal place uh, but that resonated with me too that certainly yes, resonated with me that's why i say i oh. i defer you know um, and the other part of that when he's forging that blade i think i think it's raining in that scene but it's raining a lot uh in that movie it rains a lot in that movie mm -hmm. for absolution yep. for baptism and the boatman um uh, yeah and that yeah the boatman they don't he doesn't have a name for most of the film he's the boatman which is death Caron. There's a lot to that one. Uh, it's a very it underrated film. Yeah, extremely underrated. Except uh, for that well, darn climax. I kind of like that one. And, and that, <laughs> that kind of nods to the, the Wild Bunch, I think, at the end there. Yeah. It does with Will, the William Holden with the machine gun, and he's with the, of course, much larger, yep. you know, 
So, and then the next anyway. one, uh, I, I didn't know it, notice it until you mentioned it about Trackdown. Uh, and I did go and watch Trackdown because I hadn't seen it before. And there's certainly something there. But I've heard rumors, and I don't know how yeah. much uh, of this is true because there's so many rumors that float around, uh, you know, not just Hollywood, but anywhere really, uh, of a of a six. I know nothing about it, and I I do know, um, as you know, when you've signed a movie contract, there's a kind of gag order sometimes about what you can talk about. But I have a film, I have a novel that's being developed. <clears throat> by a producer who knows the people at Millennium. <clears throat> and, I be, and I talked to him enough, or people who know him, I think if there were a sixth being planned, they, I would have word coming back to me indirectly, but Millennium doesn't like <laughs> me because I, I said in public yeah. that I didn't like the fifth <laughs> film. And, and that's very unusual. You know, I like the other four. I think the third one is repetitious, too. I mean, the, the, the third one has uh, Troutman is kidnapped. Rambo tries to uh, rescue him and fails. Rambo tries to rescue him and succeeds. Well, by definition, you can see the repetitiveness yeah. of the plot. So I always felt it lagged as the thing in the middle it lags. Whereas the original plot, which had the escape yeah. over the mountains with the orphans, uh, that that was a whole different thing, but it too too much. Too I got, expensive. I got a hardcover of uh, Rambo, yeah. Not not the not the gauntlet. Yeah, that's very rare. Yeah. That's very rare. It was a library edition. Oh, interesting. Okay, interesting. Um, so we have Rambo in the Oxford English Dictionary, as I said before, one of the top five internationally recognized thriller icons of all time, along with Sherlock Holmes, Tarzan, James Bond, Harry Potter, um, and you. Of of uh, of those who were in novels first and then became in movies, because Indiana Jones is obviously as recognized, but right. he's not from a novel. So you could take, you know, you could take some, and I think probably now uh, mm. Jason Bourne would have Got to it. be in there as well. And when that was said, the Bourne movies weren't. So I think we have to add another one in terms of uh, from a novel yep. into, because everybody knows who yep. Jason Bourne is. The only thing wrong there is there's no R at the end. <laughs> That's it's right. JB. That's right. JR. Close. He was close. Almost, almost <laughs> had it. Uh, <laughs> and you've been, uh, uh, you've been, Referred to and uh, and uh, even referred to yourself as Rambo's father, and I think I've heard you say that Rambo is like a son who grew up and went mm. in unexpected yes. directions, <clears throat> which I think is such a poignant and thoughtful yes. observation. <clears throat> but uh, uh, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, uh, you know, I write a novel; it becomes a movie. It becomes a, a different movies. You know, the character in four is the character in my novel. Uh, and I don't know the the fifth one. I I don't know I don't know what. Uh, uh, and um, you know they're so different. And then we have, you know, the cartoon <laughs> series on Saturday morning. Um, and um, I I have a a thing I don't want a comic book of it um, because mm -hmm. it would lose the the the, mm -hmm. the tension the Teasel Rambo. So um, I I've always mm -hmm. said no. Uh, when when approached about that, um, it would just not be good. Uh, I don't care how you cannot communicate, and I'm a print person as much as I'm you know anything else. So, so if I have any say, there'll never be a cookbook. 
Um, but, um, um, you know, it, it, uh, it's so many iterations. And then of course you have, I'm reading a novel that was published last year, a wonderful novel by Lisa Gardner called one step too far. It's actually our stuff. It's, uh, it's set in, uh, yeah. the Wyoming wilderness, a search party that, that, uh, and she knows her stuff about outdoor, uh, and, uh, things start the eight of them and it's, it, you know, one's gone, the other's gone. And, and, it, and I know I'm, I thought this is pretty cool. I'm going to, I know Lisa, I, when I'm oh, done, nice. I'm going to send her a note. Um, and, but it was fun because the, the, uh, one of them has a knife that the main character of a female, uh, whose expertise is searching for lost people, um, has, and she says, why it looks like Rambo <laughs> ought to be carrying this. So I thought now she knows me. So maybe she's just it. having fun. I love it. Um, and now I want to also read this cause we did talk about spoiler alerts twice. So, uh, if, if someone is still listening and hasn't read this, but, um, these are the last lines to first blood. So 50 years yes. ago, people were reading this and closing this book and they had read something different. A genre had moved forward um, and, uh, and obviously created uh, all, that, all that followed. But it reads, Troutman pumped the empty shell from the shotgun and Teasel watched its wide arc glistening through the air. He thought about Anna again and she still did not interest him. He thought about his house he had fixed up in the hills, the cats there, and none of that interested him either. He thought about the kid and flooded with love for him. And just a second before yes. the empty shell would have completed its arc to the ground, he relaxed, accepted peacefully, and was dead. Wow. I mean. It's been a long time. You're bringing me to tears here. That's, uh, uh, God, that's good. Uh, I, I, you know, forgive me for saying, I don't, I, I, I that last paragraph was in my mind long before I got to the end. Uh, and I knew that it would end with Teasel watching the shell arc and as it were slow motion. And just before it hit the ground, he'd be gone. And the mm -hmm. flooding with love, you know, in the traditional hunter hunted story uh, and, you know, in hunting societies, the prey and the, hunter uh, have uh, established some kind of unusual communication and that certainly happens in the novel uh after teasel is nearly killed at, at in the mountains and after rambo is gets through the harrowing experience in the bat cave um which was turned into rats in the in the film they're both different people they're almost on a mystical level and there they start being able to know where the other is. And I'm told I've not been, and maybe you can, that at, uh, at this heightened level of life or death, that you can sense that you know where the opponent is uh, and identify with how that person is thinking or feeling. And uh, <clears throat> that's what I was trying to communicate. And again, you know, very in its way powerfully spiritually i mean near the end Rambo starts to see god i mean he's having mystic you know as in zen buddhism mystical experiences and uh yeah that uh that uh, um the the title flooding with love became an off-broadway play by zach obersand who is both a performer and a playwright 
Uh, and uh, that he then turned that into the gimmick, the gimmick, forgive me for saying that. That's just the way I talk. The idea is that Zach is in his living room and that we are his friends and he's telling mm-hmm. them about first blood. And he and he explains the whole yeah, novel. I see. I see with that. gestures and jump and <laughs> j- jumping off the sofa and hiding behind a chair and all that. It's a wonderful piece, um, and it's called "Flooding with Love with the Kid." And Zach has gone around. Uh, uh, there's a, uh, mm-hmm. a, a video of it of him jumping <laughs> around, and uh, he he has uh, he's given he's been to a lot of uh, uh, film festivals where he has done this. And uh, he and I became friends. In fact, I heard about from him the other day because I was interviewed by somebody in Holland um, uh, along what we're doing. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, I had a film fest here in Holland. And Zach, I had Zach come over and we showed Flooding with Love with a Kid. And I thought, wow, that's cool. And then the, the guy told Zach, so Zach emailed me recently and said, hey. So it's nice, nice to, you know, yeah, it's a no, nice community. I mean, incredible. 50 years ago, this May 25th, uh, first blood hit shelves and then Rambo, <laughs> your son went in unexpected directions. And here we are, <laughs> here <laughs> we sure are 50 did. years later. Yeah. And you've been such an influence on my, my life, uh, personally, professionally, the way you, you, uh, well, thank you. what you do here, you. how you carry yourself, your example, uh, your work ethic. Um, and, uh, obviously my, my time in uniform and now what I'm, what I'm doing here, uh, as, as a writer and author. Um, and I do get the question quite a bit cause I mentioned brotherhood of the rose. I talk about it a lot. Um, I have, a, I have three, three first editions. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I get asked about what line, cause well, I mentioned there's a certain line that stood yes. out to me when I read it and yes. people ask me, they always say, what was the, what was the line? And I never tell them. I always say, you got to read the book. You got to get the book and then you got to read it. And you'll know the line when you get to it. Um, but, uh, but because I, you're here yes. and we're doing this, I want to read the, uh, the line right <laughs> here. Um, but uh, of course, just the Brotherhood of the Rose is, uh, and, and the, the books that follow, um, absolutely incredible. But I got to this, I'm reading this. I'm already, I already know what I want to do with my life. First served my country in the military. Um, I found out, I knew what SEALs were at this point. I'm on that, that path, but I'm still looking army special forces. I'm Marine recon or air force pararescue. There's all these things. I just know something ground combat role, special operations. I think it's going to be SEALs. That's where I'm, where I'm going. And then I read this and this cements it in my head. And I never wavered, uh, about where I was heading after I read this. And uh, of course, people have to remember back back when you wrote this. There's no internet. Uh, you can't just look find a seal. There was <laughs> and no internet. You can't talk to a seal That's or right. someone who's been a seal, or you can't. It's very difficult to track down people in special operations when you're when you're writing this. Um, and here here's what it says: Saul didn't need to elaborate. She knew as well as he did that the U.S. military was structured like a pyramid. The better the training, the fewer the soldiers received it. Near the top were the Army's Rangers and the Marine Corps Recon Unit. Small, extremely prepared, but the Army Special Forces stood above them, even smaller and better prepared. At the summit, the smallest, best prepared group was the Navy SEALs. This hierarchy was part of a system of checks and balances that the U.S. government imposed on the military. If the Rangers or Recon attempted a coup, Special Forces would be called in to stop them. In turn, if Special Forces attempted a coup, the SEALs would be brought in to stop them. The question remained, who would stop the SEALs if they tried a coup? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and my path was set. <laughs> oh my. 
you know, you're reading book, uh, words that I wrote, you know, 1983. Um, and, and I do not take my books down. It's not good to be influenced mm-hmm. by what I've already written. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, and there's lots of like stimulating ideas there. I mean, you say, wait a minute, I never thought about it that way. And it's the only thing is I would have not used mm-hmm. the word soldiers um, because as we know, uh, some members of the military are not soldiers, you know, so I would have used, but it might, it would be a little awkward to say military yeah. personnel or, you know, to right. find words like that. Um, but, you right. know, a Marine, for example, right. <laughs> does not like to be, so I would have, you know, you can you get, get in trouble, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> trouble over that. So, <laughs> so I, um, I would change that, but, you know, uh, uh, after 40 years. Yes, I, I think so. I think so. <laughs> but uh, David, thank you so much for for spending this time with me, for all, all you've done for for me over the years, but all you've done for authors that are just starting down down the path uh, through your inspiration and your your work. And uh, it's it's uh, an honor to, to know you and call you a friend. And I sincerely well, appreciate everything. Well, I, I thank you. And, and you know, it's rare for me at least to find, um, you know, it's as if we knew each other in another life. I mean, look at, we haven't talked since, you know, what, three, four years. And, you know, we're, we're getting in as if we'd never, you know, I mean, this is often, this becomes an interview. This was a conversation. Uh, you know, we, we, you know, we, we have similar interests and, and curiosity about one another. And um, I am, as I said earlier, I'm humbled uh, by the effect that my words had on you and how you um, and what, what happened to you. And more than that, um, how, um, how it has had a positive effect, you know, it, it, it's just to see the degree of good things that are happening and the enthusiasm that reader have readers for your work and the, you know, the, the terminal list coming out soon. Um, and I'm sure many more things like it, um, you know, it's, it, 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 or much earlier, we talked about, um, influence and how, you know, we try to, you know, if if we're doing our job, we're influencing people and, and, and we have to be careful how we do it. You know, um, that Sondheim thing, uh, uh, be careful what you say, children will listen. Uh, it's why I never, uh, I, I know, uh, you know, about explosives and thought I never put mm. formulas right. in a book. I mean, I could explain how a timer is made easily at home, but I never do it uh, because some fool will decide, you know. And, um, and so, you know, there's a point at which we, you know, have to, you know, our public view but uh anyhow i'm just thrilled about you know the uh, in the blood uh coming out uh in may not not long before the anniversary of, of first blood and i just love the yeah. the echo uh and then and not and then in shortly there thereafter july 1 i think you said uh terminal list. so it's it's uh, it's going to be cool so you know we'll uh, i hope you know have a chance oh, yeah. to speak apart from as we do on, on emails. Um, and uh, I don't, you know, 
we do communicate quite a bit. Um, uh, so that, uh, you know, anyway, I, I, I think of you as a friend. As I do you, and I hope we can get together in, in person soon and share a meal uh, yes. again. And, uh, and I, I look forward to it. And there's, yes. a, there's a couple of things I want to tell you offline here. Um, but, uh, so stay on, <laughs> but, uh, thank you so much for everything. Okay. And, uh, my goodness, it's, uh, oh. thank you for having oh, me as, a, as your on. guest. Thank you so much. Take care. Navy Federal Credit Union. I've actually been a member since 1996, the year that I joined the Navy. And Navy Federal Credit Union wants to thank the men and women in the U.S. military for their important commitment to our country. For more than 85 years, Navy Federal Credit Union has made it their mission to help people in the military community. Navy Federal Credit Union is open to all branches of the military, veterans, and their families. Navy Federal's employees are veterans and military spouses, so they're part of the community they serve, and they understand their members better than anyone. Members can enjoy an average earning and savings of $352 per year, a savings rate three times the industry average. An average credit card, APR 5% lower than the industry average, award-winning 24-7 stateside member service, over 350 branches worldwide. Show your own support for our troops with hashtag mission military thanks. Learn more about how Navy Federal is celebrating the commitment that connects them to their members at navyfederal.org slash celebrate. And I also have to read that this is insured by NCUA. Dollar value represents the results of the 2020 Navy Federal member give back study. Value claim based on Navy Federal's 2020 member give back study. Credit card value claim based on 2020 Navy Federal as low as APR averages compared to advertised industry APR averages as of December 31st, 2020, published on creditcards.com. Thanks so much. Check out NavyFederal.org. I want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. Drink Black Rifle Coffee every day day. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt, not unsimilar to this one in the Amazon series adaptation of the Terminal List. Now you can go to blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code dangerclose20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black Rifle Coffee, America's Coffee, keep crushing. Today's gear segment is sponsored by Zero Foxtrot. Zero Foxtrot provides unique products that reflect the old school vintage military lifestyle. I've actually been following these guys for a while. Love what they're doing. Have a bunch of other shirts and coffee mugs downstairs from, uh, uh, from the last few years. Just love it when guys get out and absolutely crush it. Zero Foxtrot is veteran founded and is a proud supporter of our nation's defenders, veterans, and first responders. I'm actually wearing this shirt. Look at that. Canoe Club USA. What does that mean? I think you're going to have to look it up in your web browser, the Google machine. Canoe Club USA, awesome shirts out there. They have limited edition ones that drop every now and again that are super cool. So definitely go to zerofoxtrot.com. And right now, we have an exclusive code for listeners of Danger Close. Use code JC at checkout for 20% off your order. Very cool. Remember, you can gear up with Zero Foxtrot and use code JC at checkout 
for 20% off your order. Just go to zerofoxtrot.com slash JC. And remember to use code JC for 20% off at checkout, or just click the link in the description. Once again, that offer code is JC. Gear up with Zero Foxtrot and use code JC for 20% off. Awesome. Definitely do that and check out all they have going on. Follow them on the social channels. They have some great things out there. They do some history posts every now and again that are really cool and very well thought out. Definitely check out zerofoxtrot.com for all the stuff. They have Zippo lighters in there. They have these mugs right here. What does that say? Drink coffee, stack bodies, stay zero. Love this. And then this one right here, this is cool. This might be a limited edition one. I'm not sure. Um, but for St. Patrick's Day, lack fear, not beer. Look at that. Boom. Love it. Awesome. So that's what they look like right there. Zero Foxtrot. Get a little of that action right there. That's a sticker. But uh, check out their t-shirts, mugs right here. Whiskey glasses. These are some of my favorites right there. Look at that. Oh, yeah. Solid. So check them out for sure. Zerofoxtrot.com slash JC for 20% off. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. Covered a lot of ground with David Morell today to include talking about my friend, Evan Hafer, former Army Special Forces, did a little stint with the CIA and founder of Black Rifle Coffee. And uh, we talked about him because Evan has the original artwork right here for First Blood. And if you uh, visit Black Rifle Coffee and get a behind the scenes tour here in Salt Lake, you will see right there. Can you see that? Yeah, that's it. Right there, the original artwork, uh, which is framed and is a Black Rifle Coffee. Incredible. His wife found it on eBay. Ah, amazing. Ah, uh, yeah, incredible. Anyway, Black Rifle Coffee. If you're not drinking it, this is their uh, signature exclusive coffee subscription right here. You get a different one every week. This is the Battle Sasquatch. Awesome. And uh, you get also a little something with it. You get a sticker in there and you get a little something here that, uh, that talks about it and talks about the different ways that you can enjoy it. So very cool right there. Thank you, Black Rifle Coffee. Uh, we also talked a lot about knives on the podcast with David Morrell. And, and I wish I had those originals and had gotten them back in the 80s. But we talked about the cost back then for the numbered. He said they were around $1,000 back then, um, which might as well have been a million dollars back then. But oh man, that would be so awesome to have one of those. I got my eyes out. I'm always, always looking, but uh, we did talk a lot about knives and right here. What is that? Montana knife company, Josh Smith. Thank you so much. This is awesome. I love what you're doing out there. And this is the super cub. So you get the blade right there and right here, this tells you a little bit about it. So right there. So Josh Smith, thank you so much. And this blade right here, Ooh, look at that. Awesome. Be sure and sign up for their newsletter. It's uh, on their website, Montana Knife Company, and then they do these drops and they sell out quickly. So um, highly recommend getting one of these blades and uh, awesome, Josh, thank you. And now this last thing. So David and I also talked about, uh, talked about my novels, talked about Savage Son in particular, that was influenced by David's First Blood, obviously, which we talked about, which is having its 50th anniversary, May of 2022. It came out in, on May 25th of 1972. Uh, but we talked about First Blood's influence on Savage Son, Most Dangerous Game, uh, Rogue Male, and Last of the Breed, and how those novels really influenced 
that third novel in the James Reese series. And then Joe right here, Tracker Joe 8 on Instagram. Be sure and uh, give him a follow, see what he has going on. But he built this uh, replica of the arrow from Savage Sun. This is incredible. Um, he's going to make a stand for it and I'm going to put it somewhere super cool where I can display it and see it every day. And this is amazing. And I want to read a little bit about it. So Joe, thank you so much. I was just stunned when I took this, uh, out of the the packaging. Um, but a little bit about the build. So this is a cedar shaft right here. Feathers are goose. Cause that's the closest thing he could find to, uh, what he thought that they would use in Kamchatka Peninsula, Russia, um, and in Siberia. Uh, and then right here, this head is made out of a deer leg bone and is the shape and style they used for hunting big game and in going to war with other tribes. I mean, he put so much thought into this and this thing is solid. Like this is so cool. I'm just I'm speechless. I'm stunned. Um, and it went above and beyond also. So the used pine sap mixed with charcoal right here as the glue. And uh, yeah incredible. So thank you, Joe. Amazing. Tracker Joe 08. Um, yeah, this will have a, a place of honor here in, uh, in my office. Thank you for tuning into the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about David Morell, go to davidmorell.net. That's M-O-R-R-E-L-L. Net. There's a ton of information on there on his work. Uh, there is a whole section on Rambo with great behind the scenes photos of David Morrell on the set with Sylvester Stallone uh, for Rambo 3. And there is a ton of great advice for aspiring authors, for writers. So definitely check that out, davidmorell.net. You can also connect with him on Twitter and on Facebook. And for sure, in honor of the 50th anniversary, pick up a copy of First blood. If you only know Rambo from the films, you are in for a surprise. So definitely check out First Blood. Check out the novelizations of Rambo First Blood Part 2 and Rambo 3. And if you haven't checked out David's other work to include The Brotherhood of the Rose, which was uh, very influential to me personally and professionally, well, there's a whole bunch of other books right here behind me uh, that are going to keep you busy for quite some time. Each one is absolutely fantastic. If you liked our conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels. Officialjackcar.com is the website. JackCarUSA.com is the merch. And by the time this drops, In the Blood, the fifth novel in the James Reese saga will be in the wild. Thank you so much for your support. It is sincerely appreciated. Take care, stay safe, be strong, keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you, do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy and, or right, right. An How, uh, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.